Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. Watch the left field deep. Bam going back. Looking up. He will watch it fly. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back. It's one out. He's so he's your home run derby champion. Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. If you're a little, I don't know, shocked by this pick that the A's made, I was a little, you know, I thought they would, you know, they normally go college. I thought they would go college pitchers. Instead, they go a high school catcher. He's a big kid. He's 6'2", he's 200 pounds, got a big frame. He'll just get bigger. You know, his dad, Steve, has the Backyard Baseball Academy, so he's grown up in this. He's grown up with his dad being, being a pro. We told you all about it, Gatorade, California Baseball Player of the Year. But, you know, we have his high school baseball coach coming up. uh, And I got to tape that interview earlier today. They only played in five games. So hopefully Eric Kubota, you know, Eric Kubota is a little, our scouting director is a little busy right now with what's going on with the draft. But hopefully we'll have him tomorrow. And he's had some quotes out there where he thinks he is a catcher. But Murph is only 25. And if you're really that good, you should be here 2021. And that'll only be, what, the third year of Sean Murphy? And he'll be in his prime? So if this kid goes through the system and your primary catcher is Sean Murphy in his prime, where how do you get this bat in the lineup? Because Tyler's bat looks like it's going to play. And they saw serious value here with this kid. And that's why they took him in the first round. You know, he, he models his swing. Wait for it. Cody Bellinger and Christian Yelich. If you're telling me a Cody Bellinger slash Christian Yelich bat is coming our way. 
That's the thing about these kids that are taken in the first round. You're not expected to be in the minor leagues forever. You know, the great ones now, I mean, look, look, look at Trout. I'm not saying he's Trout. I'm not saying he's Harper. I'm not saying he's Machado. But those guys are up by, you know, 19, 20. It's a young man's game. And if this kid is this legit, you know, he grew up around it. If his bat is that legit, he should be here. Cody, by what, 20, 21? Yeah, and as we talked about last night a little bit, he's the first high school catcher the A's drafted since 1974, and the first catcher taken by the A's in the first round since Landon Powell, who caught Dallas Braden's perfect game. But that's the last time they took a catcher in the first round. Now, I saw him going in some mock drafts as high as nine to the, to the Rockies. A lot of teams, including myself, thought the Giants were going to take him. I thought local kid – the Giants are always looking for the best player available, which they end up taking Patrick Bailey, who was the best player available, as another catcher. I thought he'd go 13, but then I started seeing stuff about how the A's had interest, and and then uh, the A's end up taking him. I, I would say probably 21, you would hope he's up by then. That's three full years in the minors. And he's – I mean, don't forget, we the A's have Austin Allen too, who is, uh, from what you've heard from Bob Townsend, the great Padre scout, that he's the next Stephen Vogt. So you, you got a lot to consider here with what Tyler and what, what his long-term longevity is as a catcher. I, I hope he stays as a catcher because catchers are hard to find and guys that stay as a catcher. But he has the versatility to play multiple positions because look at Josh Donaldson. He came up as a catcher, and he's the third base and one of the best in the league. So if you have that versatility, the A's are going to love you for that, and I think that's something they're getting with Tyler. But I, I hope he stays behind the plate for as of right now. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Obviously, these past couple days have just been incredible for you, your parents. We had your dad on yesterday. Uh, just talking about what it was like to get your name called that you're going to be in Oakland. Yeah, I mean, it was super surreal. I mean, just it was such an awesome experience. It was a pretty nerve-wracking day. Um, not really sure what was going to happen. We had a couple teams in play, and uh, I was thankful to get to the A's, and they selected me with their 26th pick, so I couldn't be happier with that. And I'm just super uh, – Super happy to be an A. It's pretty cool that my dad was a giant, and now we're kind of opposites. I'm an A. So uh, I hope we uh, get to that Battle of the Bay Series and I dominate the Giants over there. Yeah, I love it. You know, it's you know, it's so interesting. Your dad waited by the phone, and here you're watching it. Yeah. It was ESPN or MLB Network. And, yeah. and as you said, a couple teams have told you they're interested. What yeah. is it like watching the draft and waiting for your name to be announced? Yeah. It's super crazy because, like, you know, I'm, I had a lot of buddies coming off the board, too. So, like, you're wanting to get drafted. You're wanting to go high. Um, but, like, it's it's really cool just to kind of be in that situation. I mean, I'm a, I was one of the select few that got to be uh, selected in the first round. And it's just a super cool experience to kind of be on TV and just watch yourself be selected from the, the commissioner. That was, that was something I've always dreamed of, and it's just super cool. Yeah, especially since, you know, the start of the draft was all college guys. You're waiting. Yeah. The high school guy's going to go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, uh, it was it was definitely a lot of college guys at first, but once we kind of got into the teens, a lot of high school guys started coming off, so I got pretty comfortable there and just was waiting for my name to be called. So when you get the call, what's it like in the room with your family, your parents, and to know that you, you, you've finally been drafted? Yeah, so I actually didn't get a call. I had my, my advisor or agent, Garrett Parcell, was kind of handling that and kind of throwing it through with my dad. So they just kind of let me enjoy the moment. My dad was kind of whispering in my ear what was going on. So I had a, I had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen. But once I heard my name called, we all just really celebrated.
together, and it was just an awesome experience. So who was, who was talking to your dad and your agent other than the A's? Were there multiple teams that were saying, yeah, we're thinking about this at this pick? Yeah, there was, there was a couple teams that wanted to take me before, um, but we really liked the A's organization and wanted to get me there. Uh, so it ended up working out really well. Um, I think the Mets were in play a little bit. The Cardinals were in play. Um, even the Giants at 13, but I ended up going to the A's, and I couldn't be more happy about it. I think about a guy like you who grew up in the Valley, you know, when the A's take you, you know, Stockton is our A-ball Vegas is triple A, close to home here, Oakland when we get to the big leagues. I think yeah. that's going to a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. It means, it means a whole lot to me, kind of to stay on the West Coast and just kind of let my, like, my family's going to be able to travel to Oakland. Uh, I mean, like, I think it's like an hour and 45-minute drive, so, I mean, it means a lot to me to be on the West Coast and just kind of stay here and just kind of start my legacy on the West Coast. Tell me about catching. Because yeah. I know you love to do it. I talked to your father about it yesterday, about this, is, this truly is your passion. Yeah. Uh, I've done it since I've been little. Uh, my dad has always thrown me back there um, since travel ball days. Uh, so, I mean, I love doing it, just kind of be control of the game. I have, I have a pretty big arm, so I like to show my arm off and throw some runners out. Um, and I just kind of like how you're always in part of the game, just always back there. Um, and I like to kind of use my leadership skills, talk to pitchers and stuff like that. So that's just something I kind of like to do. Um, I take pride in my game calling, game management. I think I do a really good, uh, really good job at that. So that's why, I mean, I love catching and I want to do it for years to come. You know, it's the one position – that you're looking out at everybody else and everybody else is looking at you. You're yeah. really like the captain on the field. Yeah. Uh, I think my personality too is pretty even keel. I'm not too high, not too low. So, I mean, I think that just will kind of help me lead the team. I'm always just kind of on a straight and narrow. So I think that's one of my attributes that's going to help me be a, a good leader as well. You know, we talked to your high school coach also yesterday. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how proud he is of you. Yeah, I mean, we have a great relationship. Uh, super awesome coach. He's done a lot for me, so uh, just super grateful for him. Now, we're doing this interview, and you're at Backyard Baseball Academy, yep. the academy that your dad started. It just shows the dedication that you have. You've been drafted, and you're working out. You're ready to rock. I mean, this seems like something that, that it, this is an everyday. You yeah. lift it, you breathe it, you eat it. Baseball is, is your love. Yeah, I mean, every day I'm in here getting my hitting stuff in, defensive work in. I mean, I, I basically lived down here during this whole this whole quarantine kind of downtime. I mean, I was in here every day uh, just hitting, taking ground balls, getting my catching work in. Um, my my training facility where I work out just opened, uh, opened back up about three weeks ago, so I've been getting in there heavy, doing a lot of lifts. So, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely prepared for anything that – it's throwing at me. I know we don't really know when the season's going to come here, but uh, I'm I'm 100% ready to go. You know, I feel so bad for you guys who are seniors, and you don't really you don't get to have your senior year. Now, yeah. luckily for you, obviously, your baseball career will live on. But how about your buddies who are seniors? And you know, this yeah. is it for them. They won't they they won't play again. Yeah, I feel very badly for them. I mean. With our team this year, we're actually pretty lucky. All my really good buddies have uh, had D1 scholarships to go to college. So I mean, we had a very we had a very good team this for this high school year. So I'm act, I'm bummed for them that they didn't get to prove to the these MLB teams that they could go in the draft this year. But uh, at least they uh, have another step and they can go to college and prove to them what they're all about. So I mean, 
it was definitely hard at first to not be able to finish the season with them. But, uh, I mean, they all have their path set for college, and um, I couldn't be happier for them. Have you guys had that conversation about if you don't get picked in the first five rounds, Major League Baseball teams can sign you for $20,000, and you yeah. can start your pro career. But that's not a lot of money, and I talked to your dad about that. You're going to get yeah. taxed on that. I mean, have, have you had that conversation with your buddies who are going to college? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be a lot smarter if you were coming out of college and signed for that $20,000 because you already have a lot of schooling behind you. I think going out of high school, signing for $20,000 would not be the best idea because you still haven't gone to college, so you don't have that backup plan. So, I mean, I think it's more meant for those college juniors or college seniors that are coming out of college that already have that kind of behind them. But uh, I think all my buddies are pretty smart. They all know that they need, they need to go to college and get their get their schooling started up and then – start their professional baseball career in three years. Tell us what kind of hitter, what, what is special about you when you get into the box? Yeah, I mean, just my, my left hand at bat, uh, I'm going to apply a lot of power. Uh, my hit tool is really good. I have a great uh, great pitch recognition, so I mean, I'm not going to get myself out. I think that's a big part of the game. Um, I'm always working uh, on, on trying to perfect uh, my hitting against left-handed pitchers just as well as I do right-hand pitchers, you know, it's a little bit struggle. Lefty on lefty is kind of difficult. But, I mean, I'm always training off our – we use the three-wheel machine, uh, amp it up a little bit, get some velo going, do some left-hand sliders. That really helps me uh, excel in that part of my game. So, I mean, I'm going to come in the box. I'm going to supply power. I'm going to have a great hit tool and a great pitch recognition. You know, I, I think one of the, the, the special things about you is the fact that – you, you've been around professional baseball because of your father. So yeah. it's something that you truly understand. This is, you know, can you imagine just being someone who's never been around pro ball and now you're yeah. a number one pick? I mean, it'd be, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be far different. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have a step up ahead of everyone in that terms. Uh, I mean, I have my dad who went through the whole process. He's basically instilled everything I need to know about the minor leagues into me since I've started my baseball career. I mean, I'm even working out now with a whole bunch of minor leaguers that have come out of Turlock. They're all at my dad's facility. Um, even Dalton Jeffries. Uh, he's, I, I grew up with him since I was in junior high, middle school. Um, my dad gave him pitching lessons, so I've been around him, and I, I couldn't be more happy to kind of be with him in the, A's in the A's organization. He was just down here this morning getting him working, too, so uh, it's super cool. You know, when you look at the technology in the game, it completely changed the game. Yeah. What kind of technology do you guys have at the baseball academy that helps you be you? Yeah, uh, we have a, a hitting machine called Hit Tracks. Uh, tracks X velocity, launch angle, all those analytic numbers. Uh, so we got that about a couple of months ago, and it's really, really helped me uh, get into that part of the game with all the analytics. I'm just kind of looking at my X velocities, launch angles, hard hit average, just all those crazy different numbers. Yeah, it is crazy when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of numbers. I don't even know what they are on the hit tracks machine, but they've somehow calculated. I don't even know. How do you incorporate that into your own game? Like, tell me when you're practicing or when, when you're in game. How do you incorporate it? Yeah, I think it's just another another tool you can use to help become better, help you get yourself better. I mean, when you're in the cage and you maybe miss hit a ball, you can look at the numbers and maybe try something different, hit the ball a little harder, have a little a little better launch angle. Um, I think kind of helps finding a cue in your swing that you need to, that I need to learn to kind of just help me become a better hitter. But I think it just, it just really helps you kind of know your swing, know your limits and just kind of really help you all around. 
You know, talking to your high school coach, you're talking about what a terrific athlete you are, and they have been able to move you around the diamond at times. They yeah. you had you playing shortstop. Yeah. Well, if, if you don't play catcher, where do you see yourself playing? Yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, I think the game's getting younger and younger, and to have versatility at the next level is something that teams really do value. So, I mean – I mean, as you like, you can take the Dodgers, for example, they're throwing guys all around the place. So, I mean, with my athleticism and versatility, I mean, I can honestly, I'm comfortable at any position on the field. I can contribute to the team, third base, uh, shortstop, outfield, first base, second base. Um, I mean, I could be completely confident you guys throwing me out there and contributing to the team. Um, so, I mean, I think that's just one of my uh, skill sets that are really important to my versatility and athleticism. Well, you know, I you, you look at the guy that you've brought up now that we've gotten to know you, Cody Bellinger. Yeah. And Cody Bellinger, I can play him in center, I can play him in right, I can play him at first base. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's kind of where the world is. You be, you become so much so much more valuable. When yeah. You play multiple positions. Definitely, yeah. I mean, just some that I think teams really do value now. I mean, a lot of teams are kind of turning that route. Maybe if I'm I'm catching a couple of gate couple games and they want to get my legs legs a rest they can move me out to third or in the outfield and kind of keep my bat in the lineup so i think that's what's really uh, valuable about me so when you look at your swing do you look at bellinger do you look at yelich those are the guys you think you compare to yeah those are two guys i idolize and love to watch uh, i mean i love watching our swing i think we have a lot of similarities so i mean i continue i'm going to continue to watch them and take stuff away from them all right, let's end on this. Since we've been in this pandemic and we, we continue to do our show, uh, we've been asking people, you're doing deep dives on something, right? Some, some people are, you have a series on Netflix, some yeah. people Hulu, some people reading books, some people puzzles, games. What have you been doing a deep dive on since uh, this pandemic started? Um, I really enjoyed the show uh, Outer Banks on Netflix. Uh, I probably finished that in about two, three days. I've probably rewatched it about one or two times. So, I mean, that's something that I really liked was a show Outer Banks on Netflix. Hey, good stuff. I, I, I appreciate it. Normally, you would have come to Oakland, you yeah. would have taken DP, and then you and I would have done an interview on the dugout. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we're not going to get that, but uh, we truly appreciate the time, and hopefully we'll see you at spring training when this thing all starts again. Uh, congratulations. I know it's such a big honor. Your parents are so proud. And uh, I can tell you, all the eight fans are really looking forward to watching you play. Awesome. I appreciate it, guys. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to come on A's Cast Live. And I sure it was probably one of the greatest days in your family's history with your son going in the first round. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's not much that compares to it. Maybe his birth, but... Um, Man, what a special day it was yesterday. Uh, going to Oakland was awesome. Um, staying, staying close to home. Just, I mean, something we can't even, there's not much words we can say. We're just super excited. And it's so similar to you. I mean, you got drafted out of Fresno State in the first round. You're just the 10th father and son to both go in the first round. But the same thing for you getting drafted by the Giants and finally getting called up in 96. Yeah, I mean, Obviously, having that opportunity with the Giants for me and playing in the big leagues with them was was exciting. Uh, being a first round pick, you know, obviously was was awesome. But having a son do it, I think, is is just extra special. Um, 
just so proud of him. Just, you know, the fact that, yeah, we were, you know, I think what is it? The 10th time you said that yeah. it's happened. And, um, you know, just to share that memory with him forever is something really cool. You know, the draft has changed so much with the visibility uh, of putting it on television. Cause back in the day, uh, when we were playing, you, you know, you just, you didn't have this kind of coverage. And I think it was really cool yesterday watching all the families, and when, when, when the players got picked to be around mom, dad, brothers, sisters, family, friends, girlfriends, how did you like the coverage of the draft? Uh, you know, I loved it. I mean, I remember back when I was going through it, you know, I was just standing by the phone, just, you know, with a few people in there, just kind of waiting for the phone to ring. Uh, this time, it, it, you know, it was like an event. Uh, you know, we had a ton of family over from both sides. Um, you know, and it's just, it's great to see, you know, the, the families put a ton of time into this too, especially with the travel ball these days. And, you know, it's like a, it's almost like a family affair and having to celebrate it with everyone. And you can see the, you can see the excitement and almost the relief and, and everything in between of the emotions that run through people. You know, you've been tweeting out some uh, highlights of him working out at your baseball academy, backyard baseball academy. I mean, you've been working closely with your son for a long, long time. Yeah. So, you know, he's been fortunate. I, you know, I was fortunate. I I grew up on a ranch out in in Turlock and we had a big building that was, you know, sitting empty when I got done playing and turned it into an indoor facility. So both my boys have had a, you know, it's it's an advantage where they they can almost walk down and and take as many swings as they want. So, uh, you know, I've been working with Tyler. He's actually, you know, he was blessed with just a natural left-handed swing. I didn't have to do much to it except for flip him some balls and, and throw and, and, put them in a machine. So definitely blessed uh, for having this and uh, it's helped both my kids out. Yeah. And it was great that he got into UCLA, which is one of the great baseball programs. I I know they're negotiating. Uh, Do do you see him signing and and coming to play for the athletics? Uh, I mean, it's a first round pick. I mean, there's, I mean, unless something goes completely haywire, but I don't see that happening. I mean, he's dreamed of playing in the, major leagues his whole life since he found out that I played and you know that's his goal and that's what he wants to do and uh you know UCLA was great to him uh Savage was you know gonna really help him with his catching but you know with this kind of opportunity you know unless something goes completely sideways you know he's gonna be in Oakland A probably sooner than later so we know he's a catcher he's a tall kid he's very athletic if he's not going to play catcher, where do you think his best position would be? Um, you know, that's a good question. I, his hands are, are amazing just as far as just whether it's receiving or, or feeling a ground ball. But, you know, he, he's surprisingly pretty quick. I, you know, I could see him in left. I could see him in third, a third base. Um, you know, he could play first. He could play second. I mean, you He's probably not a shortstop or center fielder, but you put him anywhere else on the diamond, I think he's going to succeed anywhere you want him. But, I mean, his passion's catching. As you know, I mean, versatility is such a big thing in baseball. I mean, especially with the A's and the way Bob Melvin manages. I mean, we've had guys that have come over that, you know, we thought they were one thing. I mean, Mark Cannon is a great example. We thought he was going to be like a DH first baseman. He was playing center field for us last year. So in modern day baseball, really versatility is the name of the game. It is. And I, and I think, I think Tyler 
I mean, again, I'm his father, but I've been around the game a long time. Um, I think he's going to be one of the most versatile guys in this that comes out of this draft. I mean, you want to stick him behind the plate, he's going to do a great job. You want to stick him in that third, he's going to do a great job. He obviously needs a little more reps at those at those positions just because he hasn't had them as much. But um, I think people will be shocked on how well he receives. He's been knocked a little bit on his receiving. And uh, there's been a few people that said he was a backup catcher, which, you know, is, is crazy. But I think people will be shocked when they see how good he is. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. When 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 you're looking at a kid who really didn't have a senior year, and you're you're, you're talking about his receiving. I mean, he's he's 18 years old for God's sakes. He's got. I mean, he's got a lot to learn. But I mean, I mean, come on, that's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it. You know, it was some of the things that floated around were were, were pretty funny. But you know, I as I you know being a pitcher and a lot of the stuff that we talk about is hey, you're going to have a 12 man staff that you're going to have to be able to communicate with and know how each pitcher kicks and how they're thinking like that's going to be his job I'm not worried about his physical skills of catching but you know the part that he's got to learn is each pitcher is different and he's got to be able to communicate with them get them fired up or you know calm them down and you know as an 18 year old and you're out there with some older you know older kids and or you know men like he's going to have to show that he's a leader and step up and be able to communicate with these guys. How's his throwing? Uh, great arm. Uh, throwing's not going to be a problem for him. He, he can he can throw it with the best of them. Um, I guess if he got anything from me, you could say he got a good arm out of it. Yeah, no doubt about it, because we got to watch you pitch not only with the Giants, the San Jose Giants, and, of course, Fresno State. Uh, how was mom yesterday? What was it like for mom having her son drafted in the first round? Uh, I mean, it was – I mean, I'm not going to lie. We were – it was stressful. Um, you know, we we knew he was – you know, should go in the first round. But, you know, there's a lot of things that come into it that maybe not everyone gets. And, um, you know, going through that – those picks and, you know, waiting to hear his name called. I mean, it was definitely, you could see it on, a, I'm sure you could see it on my face and you could definitely see it on hers, but, uh, you know, it was just, but then once the name's called, that all goes away and you can, and you're, you're just so excited. You know, the great thing for him having a father who pitched in the big leagues and played in pro ball is the conversations that you can have, because nowadays, uh, you know, we got we got a thirteen man pitching staff. I mean, the, and you know, who knows after this pandemic? I mean, the rosters once we start playing this year, it's going to be expanded. And I know I've talked to a lot of the catchers over time. I mean, you've really got to you got to know thirteen guys inside and out. Yeah, and that, I mean, again, I said that's what he's going to have to. That's what he's going to have to really work on, and, and he, you know, he's going to have to you know, get some advice from some guys. Cause you know, I've tried to, you, you can tell guys what it's like to play 160 games and, and, you know, be able to deal with a pitching staff of, of different, different guys and different ideas, but you got to get in there and you got to be, you know, a leader and be able to talk to these guys. And I think, you know, advantage for him is he's had me pounding it into him over the last three, four years, like, Hey, here's what you got to do. Now it's different with a high school staff when your buddy's with them and you got three or four guys that you're working with. But like you said, 12 to 15 guys, that's a different ball game. So 
definitely some uh, work to do on that end. And uh, but you know, the kid likes to work, and I don't see it being a problem. As someone who works with a lot of kids, just how tough was it this year? I don't know how many guys you've been working with who are seniors this year. But I just feel so bad for these guys that they didn't. This is your most important season. It's your senior year. And even like places in the Midwest and the East Coast, they didn't even get to play one game. Just how sad has that been? Yeah, you know, I was, I mean, obviously super disappointed. The season got canceled. Um, But for some kids, I'll say I'll use Tyler's example. You know, Tyler knew he was going to play past high school. Some of these kids that high school was kind of their last, you know, their last chance to play with their buddies and their last chance to play a sport, you know, I'm, I feel terrible for those kids because they, you know, some kids that, that was their, that's all they wanted to do was just have one more chance to play. And, and they knew that would be it. And those are the kids I feel hurt the most for because they're not getting the opportunity. Now Tyler's going to be fine. He gets to play and there's other kids that do, but um, that's the sad part in this whole thing. Those kids that are, that are finished. Yeah, and, and I've been saying on this show for some kids who think they might be able to continue playing or they at least want a shot, go to junior college and give it a shot. If you think you want to play, you, you may never get drafted. You know you're not going to get drafted, but you love playing the game. You don't want to take the uniform off. I think junior college is, is a is – a, if you can make the team, would be a great way to go. You know, get two years under your belt in school, then go to a university. But I think junior college is going to be a big pick for a lot of guys. I definitely agree. These these college rosters are going to be slammed. You're going to have two freshman classes. You're going to have juniors coming back. Some of these universities are going to have 50-man rosters. I mean, you know, nine guys play the game. Um, so you're going to have to deal with 41 guys that aren't playing. Now, I mean, just as a player and as a parent, that that's hard to sell. Um, when you could go to a junior college and – play and get two years of playing time in where you might be sitting at two years at a at a division one or even a division two now there's just going to be an overload of kids so you know there's no right answers in this and i don't i wish you know the best for everyone but that's going to be it's going to be a tough situation if you had a guy you were working with and he doesn't go in the first five rounds after that you're, you're simply getting twenty thousand dollars Let's say you're a freshman and you're a senior in high school. You have a chance uh, to go play college ball or you're a junior and you have a chance to go back for your senior year. What advice would you give? Because $20,000 is not a lot of money. It's not a lot of money. And, you know, but, you know, it would be, I think for me, it'd be a situation that, you know, if I knew I was going back to school and I was going to play every day, get every at bat, I'm going back to school. Um, if I was someone that wasn't sure uh, what my situation was, I would, and if someone, if a pro team was going to sign me for $20,000, I would probably go at least give it a shot because what do you got to lose at that point uh, would be my best advice. But, um, you know, some of these kids, it's just uh, with five round drafts, you know, there's going to be some kids that are going to get left out that probably should be playing. Well, let's end on this. I'm sad. One of the traditions that we have is that I always interview our first round pick first when he comes up and takes batting practice with the big club. And uh, I 
It's just going to be sad that we're probably not going to see that. But congratulations to your son, to your family. I know you guys have put a, hard, a lot of hard work. And uh, it's good to talk to you. It's been a while since we uh, tipped a few back uh, downtown San Jose at Katie Blooms. But good to talk to you. Be well. And uh, hopefully we'll see you in Oakland sooner than later. Yep, I agree. Thanks for the call. And I uh, appreciate it. And, uh, again, just thanks uh, to the Oakland A's for taking a chance on Tyler. And, uh think they're going to be happy with the pick and uh thanks again there we go gentlemen welcome to a's cast live how are you good how's it going doing great thank you well first of all congratulations and welcome to uh, a's nation thank you so much i really appreciate it i'm excited to be here so coach i uh, able to track you down through uh, gary cunningham because uh, i played at san jose state and i know coach and uh, I, I'm actually do, bringing you back home to San Jose. This is my home studio in Willow Glen. No kidding. How about that? So You got to tell Coach Cunningham I said hello. He's one of the best. So that was the one thing we were like, we're, we got to bring Coach back home also. So it's great to, that you guys are uh, at a party together. What was it like when you, when you found out you were selected by the Oakland A's? It was, uh, it was truly an awesome feeling. Um, you know, I got my family here and some former teammates and coaches. And, um, you know, I couldn't have dreamed up a better moment. So, so it was awesome. So projecting you, reliever, starter, what have the A's said to you if they've said anything at all? Yeah, you know, it's pretty fresh at this point. So, um, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, what they're looking to do. But um, I guess we'll see going forward. Coach, you know, you've had such great success at Michigan and your program. You got quite a few guys. I mean, more guys would have got drafted if we didn't have five rounds, but you're still expecting quite a few guys to be drafted, correct? We are, yeah. We, we're expecting three more today and, uh, you know, glad that glad that Jeff is off the board and uh, you're not going to find a better competitor than this guy standing right next to me. So really excited for him and uh, all the hometown fans. Uh, whatever he projects as, he's a big leaguer. That's what he projects as. And they're going to see him uh, very soon. Well, the uh, area scout has informed us that out of the bullpen, you're like 100 miles an hour. But if you're going to be a starter, it'll be somewhere around 95, 97. Is that a good projection for you? Uh, you know, I guess we, we could say somewhere around there. Uh, you know, I'm not sure about triple digits quite yet, but, um, you know, we're hoping to get there soon. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to have you in because uh, this is going to be a very good draft class. And, you know, you, you, you're, coming to a, you're coming to an organization that's won 97 games two straight years, and there's such a, a great core of young players that this franchise is projecting to have a chance at winning a World Series in the next couple of years. I think that has to excite you. Oh, it's, it's incredibly exciting. I know. Um, you know, a lot about the organization. I got a former teammate who's in the organization right now, and he's got nothing but great things to say. So, um, you know, I'm, I couldn't be couldn't be happier, and, and I'm incredibly excited to get, get in the organization. Coach, you've turned Michigan. I mean, you were just runner-up in the College World Series playing for the national championship. I, I believe you've been there around eight, nine years. What's it like been building back up the Wolverine baseball program? Well, you just got to build it with exceptional people, people like Jeff and his family. And that's what it takes. It just takes uh, extremely talented kids who have a commitment towards getting an education. And, uh, you know, our program has really thrived in the player development arena. We've, we've uh, tried to find our niche here in the Midwest of advanced player development. And, 
when you have players and a team that's as bought in uh, to just improving and growing and getting better and competing for Michigan and that block M uh, is very satisfying to see it all come together and, uh, and watch these guys have success on the field. And how just, you know, when you talk about the technology, everybody's using it now, but really college baseball was at the forefront of rap sodos and these fast cameras and track man and everything. Just talk about how player development and technology has been something very strong has made college baseball such a great sport. Well, you know, I would trace it back to, you know, your organization and, and Billy Bean really starting a revolution with looking into advanced data and that spawned TrackMan and Rapsodo and things to determine what the ball is doing. And we've taken it another level to determine what the human body can do uh, and start looking internally instead of just what the metrics are for a baseball. But uh, what are you know the mobility and stability patterns of, a, of our athletes and how can we improve them biomechanically so that they can have even better results? So we utilize all the gadgets, uh, but we're really focused on maximizing the potential of based on what each player can physically do. Tyler Soderstrom is our number one pick, and his dad uh, played for the San Francisco Giants out of Fresno State, and we had his head coach on. And how sad it was for this high school coach to tell his seniors, and a lot of them won't go on to play college baseball, that this was done for them. And you guys, obviously, with your season, uh, going forward, what is it going to be like? So you're going to be able to keep, guys who want to come back for their senior year, but then you also have a new freshman class coming in. Yeah, it'll be a little bit of a log jam, but luckily there was some relief given uh, by the NCAA to allow everyone to have that additional year. And then we just got recent legislation to expand on our 35 roster cap. So uh, that log jam won't be uh, maybe as compounded, but you know, we still only have 11.7 scholarships. That still presents a problem. But, you know, co college coaches are very creative and we'll figure a way out. And, uh, you know, we're excited about next year's college baseball crop because it looks to be the most talented, deepest, oldest group of college baseball players uh, we've had in a long time. But we'll certainly miss miss guys that are departing, guys like Jeff Criswell. Well, hopefully next year we will have the draft in Omaha and your, your Michigan Wolverines will be there, hopefully. And uh, maybe we'll be able to talk to you again. But we're going to love to talk to you. Bring the kid from San Jose back home. Uh, it's great to see you guys. Jeff, congratulations. I can't wait to see you at spring training. I'm sure you're having a great party there. Enjoy with your family, and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Go Blue. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. All right. Hey, thanks again. Jonathan, I know you've been busy lately. Thank you for taking the time. But I got to tell you, uh, you guys did a very good job entertaining us because we, we, we've we needed some live content and you guys provided that. Well, it was it was, it was fun all around. I mean, I always loved the draft, but it was kind of interesting to note that we were the uh, the only game in town. And uh, you know, the only thing I hope moving forward, regardless of the length of the draft, is I love at least for night one there being no games during the draft. Even when the baseball season is going on, the draft should be front and center, at least for that one night. I, I don't know if you sense this. I kind of got this sense watching you is when you only have five rounds, there seemed to be some type of urgency of you got to get these picks right. Did you get that sense? Well, I mean, you know, I spend most of my time talking to scouts and they always want to get it right. So I think I always feel their urgency to do so. 
Uh, I think there's, you know, a little less margin for, for error. Um, well, not margin for error, but, uh, you know, because you're not, you don't have the opportunity to add tons and tons of players like you normally do. Um, you know, with the fewer picks, maybe there is a, a greater sense of wanting to make sure you get talent that can actually help and not just, you know, guys who might be organizational fillers and things like that. How do you think this is going to play out? High school guys, juniors in college guy. How, how do you think this whole, okay, you didn't get drafted in the five rounds. We now can sign you. We can only give you 20,000 and after taxes, that's not a whole lot of money. How do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, it's funny because as we, as we are speaking, I'm working on a, on a story previewing some of that and it, it's uncharted territory. I don't think anyone really knows. I think that the kind of ranked or known players, you know, the college players are going to go back to school. I already saw on social media, Tommy Mace of the university of Florida already said, I'm coming back. Uh, and I think for the, the, the guys who are at really good programs, those they're going to go back to school. I don't think there are going to be any high school players who signed for $20,000 or very, very, very few. And I think most of them are players who get, drafted are kind of are going to be some college seniors uh guys that analytics departments you know they checked off boxes because spin rate or exit velocity or what have you um you know and if any of them aren't seniors then it's gonna be one of the college juniors who normally you see get drafted in the 20th round and above um so you know i, I wouldn't expect any kind of known names or, or rank guys to, to necessarily sign for that you know, college baseball is going to get real interesting. And we had Eric Backich, uh, head coach of Michigan, on the program. We we had Danny Hall from Georgia Tech on today, obviously talking about the players the uh, A's drafted. But with, you know, with, with seniors not leaving and coming back for another senior year and the incoming freshman class that's coming in, uh, there's going to be f- a lot more college baseball players than we've ever had before. The, the, 2021, I mean, it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, and there's only so many scholarships to go around. I think there are a lot of questions surrounding that that need to be answered, um, which I would have thought may have led to some of the the, the players you know, signing. But you know, the the top college players who haven't who weren't drafted, you know, I can't say to a man but most of them turned down some kind of offer in the top five rounds. I think that's why you saw in rounds four and five teams going a little bit more off the, the radar with some players, you know, some not ranked guys in, in the third, fourth, and fifth rounds uh, because some of the tar- players they had targeted said no, uh, whether it was because it was, you know, under slot, it was less than they thought they could make. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure of the, the exact reasons, but that's why I think like the, the, the the Tommy Maces of the world, and I'm sorry to keep using him as an example, but um, <clears throat> are the kinds of guys that we thought would go and just didn't like the money that was being offered and decided that going back to school would be a better option. So when we look at the A's draft, Tyler Salderstrom, who we've had on the program, we've also talked to Jeff Criswell out of Michigan, uh, Michael Goldberg, we had his head coach on from Georgia Tech. Uh, then you got the right-handed pitcher, Dan Aker out of Oklahoma, and then Stevie Emanuel's uh, right-handed pitcher out of Washington, uh, University of Washington. What do you think about the A's draft? 
Um, so I like Tyler Soderstrom a lot. Um, and the rest of it was just okay to me. Uh, you know, I will admit, you know, Jim Callis and I split up the country. So the, the guys in the middle, Criswell, Goldberg, and Acker, I like, I didn't know a ton about, um, I like Stevie Emanuel's. I think that's sort of an interesting pick because there's some upside there and you just don't know whether or not he's going to start. The A's think he can start. Um, you know, Criswell's good. Uh, I think that's a good second round pick, but, um, uh, you know, the, the four guys after Soderstrom, uh, didn't like jump off the page at me as guys like I was really excited about. You know, when, when, when you talk about Tyler, and we had his father on. I, I played against his father in college. I, I knew him when he was with the San Jose Giants. Uh, I mean, he's got the pedigree. But we got Sean Murphy at catcher, which I don't see Sean Murphy moving off catcher for many years to come. He's just 25 years old. So, uh, Tyler, obviously, the bat plays. Do you see him as a catcher, or do you think at some point the A's will have to move him to get his bat into the lineup? I think that's a good problem to have if you're an organization and you don't, you know, you don't decide not to take a high school player at a position because you've got a guy in the, in the big leagues at that position. Hey, I mean, the, the Giants took a college catcher. They've got Buster Posey in the big leagues and Joey Bart in the minor leagues. So uh, you go figure, but I think, you know, especially, I mean, high school catchers can take a little extra time if they stay behind the plate, just because of all the things they need to learn. And Tyler has some things he needs to work on behind the plate. Now, I think the benefit with him is that he is athletic. He can play other positions. So if they decide after a year or two years, whenever they want to do it, and he's still, you know, in a ball, say, uh, to move him, they can because he can handle uh, – maybe he can play third. He, I think he certainly could handle playing left field. Um, and he can really hit. And so, I, I, like, I, I'm not too concerned about that. You cross that bridge, you know, when you need to. Who knows, you know, four or five years from now, you know, uh, where Sean Murphy will be. Maybe he'll have been traded. Maybe he'll leave via free agency and the A's can't afford him. You just don't know. So, like, I, I would, you know, let Tyler catch for as long as it seems uh, vi a viable option and then worry about moving him when and if you need to. Yeah. Then, uh, you know, when they negotiate a new CBA, I mean, we have no idea how free agency is going to change. You know, is it six years or now that, you know, they don't want to pay the older guys and the younger guys. Okay. If you're not going to pay me when I get older, you got to pay me when I'm younger. So do you, do you hit free agency at three years, four years? So we, we, yeah, we, we, we just don't know what the next collective bargaining agreement is going to look like. I know in, in football, uh, they look, they look at the draft and they say, okay, let's wait three years and then I'll, I'll, I'll put a grade on the draft. What, what do you do for baseball? How, how many years does it take to really know whether you were successful or not? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to wait at least five years uh, and probably more than that, like 10 years, really, in some ways. Um, because if you take a high school kid, he may not make it to the big leagues for five years. That's why I think that's the, the first time that you can really look to see if some of those guys have made it to the big leagues or, or maybe they're at the upper minors and they're really, really good prospects. Um, so, you know, I think you, five years is probably where I would start where you can 
kind of look back with uh, with hindsight and and see how a team did. I, I want your your opinion on this strategy. And, and when I hear, okay, I got I got X player on my board. I really like him the best, but I can take this other guy, spend a little less money, and then draft somebody else later and spend more money on them. So it's almost like I guess you call it a two for one. I'm always the guy like if I if this is this, if if I think this guy is the guy and he can be a superstar and he can play in my organization and help me win and win big for many years, I would take that guy. But what do you think about that strategy where you may not take that guy, you'll take somebody else who you don't like as much, but that's going to allow you to pick another player because of because of the way the money works with the draft. I mean, I think as long as nothing is set in stone, um, you can look at it in, in, in either direction. You know, the, the one danger you can run into is, you know, you take a player at, for less money and then the player you think you w- want to get later on isn't, isn't around. Um, you know, I think that's uh, extremely possible. You know, I think like the Baltimore Orioles have saved money for signing Heston Kierstad. Um, taking him number two, a really good player, top 10, excuse me, caliber player. Um, now they opted to wait and they went aggressively after high school guys in the fourth and fifth rounds. So they had a sense that those guys were probably going to be around. Um, when you're trying to make sure you get someone, you know, in a, in a comp round or the next the second round, you can't be guaranteed that that player is going to be available. Uh, and then you also have to be able to adjust if a player turns out to be around. I mean, look at the A's. I don't think they entered into the draft thinking Tyler Soderstrom was going to be there for them, uh, you know, at, uh, at, uh, at 26. And he was mentioned all over uh, the draft starting as high as 11, 12, 13. Um, now it, it worked out that he, he was there and they were able to figure out how that was going to work uh, from a financial standpoint. But that's what I mean in terms of you have to uh, you have to be able to adjust on the fly as things change, uh, you know, in, in the volatility of the draft. I'm not going to hold you to this. So five years from now, ten years from now, I will not say, "Hey, you said this on my show." But if you had to pick a winner of this year's draft, where there was only five rounds, which team do you think did the best? One team. Um, you know what? I'm going to, I've had a couple that I've kind of been throwing out there. I think, I mean, I like what the Marlins did. I like what the Padres did. The Padres went after a lot of upside talent. Uh, the fact that they were able to get Cole Wilcox in in the third round, that was good. You can tell that I'm stretching to try to pick the team that I really want. You know, the one team that I keep going back to is is the Cleveland Indians. Um, Whether or not it ends up being the best crop, I don't know, but I thought that they used their, their six picks really, really well. Um, You know, they took Carson Tucker, a high school shortstop from Arizona, uh, Cole's younger brother uh, with the first round pick. He was on the rise. I think he's going to be, has a chance to be a really good shortstop. Uh, near the end, they got Milan Tolentino, a high school shortstop from California, who I didn't think was signable, really solid player. Petey Halpin, a high school outfielder, I really like, kind of under, uh, underappreciated. But the other even like the two college guys that they got uh, in between there, Tanner Burns and Logan Allen, I think 
both will be big leaguers. So like, you know, they're going to have to pay Milan Tolentino. Petey Halpin might be over, over pick value also. Um, but the guys that they got in between are good players. Um, the last, the last player they got Mason Hickman is, it was interesting, but that, you know, that, that might be more of a money saver when all said and done, but over, but overall, I really like what, uh, what they did with their class. Let's end on this college baseball <laughs> is very sophisticated. And I've been talking to these college coaches about how colleges with the technology were eat, were way ahead of major league baseball. And there's such good coaching and technology in college baseball you know, I know there's some years where you say, well, it's a better high school draft than a college draft. But going forward, is it really going to be more about college college guys just because of how good the coaching and technology is in college baseball now? Not necessarily. I think I think that it's completely cyclical. You know, uh, this draft class this year was college heavy. Uh, and, um, you know, and because of the shortened draft, there was some – thought that it was going to be even more college heavy. Yes, more college players were taken. The best high school players were taken and will will sign, especially up up top. You know, they went they went early on. So I I, I don't I don't know because listen, there's some high school programs out there that uh, are unbelievable, especially in the warm weather states, you would think they were a college program. And a lot of that the the data and and technology and all those things that you speak of in, with college players and programs are seeping down to the high school level with the, the showcases major league baseball did the PDP league last summer. So I, you know, I think it really just depends on the year. It, it comes in, in, in waves, what the strengths tend to be. Well, I got to tell you, I've never looked forward to a draft like I did this year, just to, just to have something that was, live and to watch highlights of these kids and, and uh, all the different interviews and the insight you guys did a wonderful job and thank you for entertaining us for two days we truly appreciate it and hopefully we'll get uh, baseball going again soon and we'll have you on the program again sounds good thanks for having me kyle thank you so much for the time we truly appreciate it we know you've been busy as we've been watching on espn doing the draft yeah, it's been a fun few days. Um, it, it's a little strange to be doing TV shows out of your basement when your dog runs in the middle of it, but that's that's kind of the that's kind of the norm right now. So I'm um, I'm excited. I, I think that it was it was presented in a way that we were hoping for. Um, thankfully, we had a producer that had done baseball tonight for a long time, and so just his ability to get from one place to the other, even when we're in six different states, um, it worked. It was fun. You know, I, I, I know we want to get to Omaha and have the draft at Omaha, and that would be, like, great. But I do like what we saw with basically the technology of being able to put, uh, you know, some type of camera, whether it's a computer or a phone, inside a kid's house where his yeah. parents – brother and sister, girlfriend, everybody's there. And you see the emotion because we had never really seen that before. Well, we got to see it with the NFL draft, but now with the baseball draft, to see the emotion of the families when a guy's name gets called, that was truly special. Yeah, it's cool because it's, you know, it's so genuine. Um, You know, especially the times you don't know exactly when the phone's going to ring and, and, you know, for, for some guys, 
you, you have conversations immediately ahead of time, so you know there's a pretty good chance. But still, I can't imagine the rush. I mean, mine was very different. Our SI, we were actually playing in Omaha when I got drafted, and I was on the field at Rosenblatt uh, in batting practice. But it was our SID that ran out and just said, hey, the Brewers just took you at 13. I can't imagine what it would be like to actually be watching TV and see it happen that way and see the commissioner come up and, and announce your name. So I, those, those honest, just human reactions were really cool. Yeah. We've had uh Rick Monday on the program, obviously Rick, if you know, drafted by the Kansas city A's, the first ever pick uh, at Arizona state, 1965, he was stretching at Rosenblatt Stadium down the right field line when the writers came out and said, hey, Rick, you're the first draft pick ever. So it's kind of crazy really? to go from like what you guys went through to where we are today. Yeah, it's cool. It is cool. And, and you know, I think it, I don't know. I, I think it gives the kids the, the exposure that they deserve. And for a lot of these kids, it's to some extent, their introductions to their fan bases and, and, to a lot of baseball fans in general. For the high-profile college guys, yeah, they, you know, they've been on TV, and plenty of those guys have played in the College World Series in the postseason. But some of them hadn't. And, and obviously the high school kids have never been in an environment like that. It, it was it was cool to, to talk to them leading into it. I don't know, just kind of see their excitement, anticipation, respect for, for what was going to happen in the following day. Tell us with, with, with the Oakland A's getting Michael Goldberg, what are we getting with this outfielder from Georgia Tech? I haven't seen a whole lot of them, and I, I think it's it's an interesting draft when it comes to that because the way that a lot of them were put together is there's some areas you can save some money, and I think this was probably an area that David looked at and said they can save some money with the sign that you can then allocate to other areas in the draft. And I think now with, with slot and just the total amount that, that everybody has within their draft pool, that's massively important. You're playing a chess game. Because you've got X to spend, whatever it is. I don't remember what the A's pool was. But you don't have to spend it the way that slot value comes up. In fact, essentially nobody does. So it's where can we move a little bit here and go get somebody for less that we like, but we know isn't going to cost us slot value and then potentially use that to go somewhere else that we're going to have to spend more. And and every team can deal with that now. What'd you think about the number one pick? We, we, we got him on today's show and his father, Steve Soderstrom. I got to play against him back in the day in college. Of course, he got a cup of coffee with the San Francisco Giants. Uh, what did you think about the first round pick, the catcher at a Turlock High School? So was it, did his dad play Fresno? Yeah, he was at Fresno State, and then he played. I think he got like a couple games in. He was two and zero as a San Francisco Giant. Um, okay. Long time, yeah, yeah. Northern California, everybody knew he he was a really good pitcher coming out of Fresno State. Yeah, I think I played against him too. Now that you said it, I didn't realize that was his dad. Um, well, I don't think the A's thought he'd be there when they picked. I'll tell you that because when you looked at all the projections, I mean, Soderstrom was probably top high school catcher out. 15 somewhere in there um and that could have been one of those situations to where the number and, and we'll figure out here in the next few weeks but the number was one that um that the a's ultimately are going to have to overpay slot but you get a talent that was universally seen as one of the top two or three high school catchers in the country so and it, you know the, the nfl draft is so different the nba draft is so different because you're you're timing as far as return is so much shorter than the major league draft and so often we get done with these things, and we were doing it last night. Like, if, who had the best draft? Well, 
how the hell do we know? <laughs> you know, I mean, we don't know for five years. That's just the reality of it. Whereas NBA, NFL, you, you got a pretty good idea about six months out whether you think your draft was a good one or a bad one. And even if, if Sadis removes quicker than most through a, a minor league system, you know, best case scenario is get the uniform on in three and a half, four years. So it just by all the projections, it was a guy that I think probably surprised David in the front office that he got to him, but I would assume they were pretty excited to see him there. You, you know, what's so interesting about our game now is how fast guys get to the big leagues and, 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 and it was kind of a norm way back when, you know, our guy, Ray Fossey, who's been with the A's for so many years, you know, we're talking to Ray and, and of course, Johnny Bench was in the same draft as Ray, the first draft in 1965. These guys were in the big leagues in two years after being in high school. And it kind of seems like we're going that way. Are we rushing guys to the big leagues or do you think they're ready to go, you know, two, three years out of high school? Well, I, I mean, I think it's an individual by individual situation. I, I think there's some that physically may be ready a little bit earlier, but maybe mentally aren't ready for, um, I would say, for the inevitable failure that's going to happen when you go to the big leagues, especially when you're coming out of high school. There's exceptions, obviously. I mean, the Mike Trout's of the world, but we're talking about potentially, the, I mean, the, the best player that we've ever seen in the major leagues. So I, I think it really depends on, on both. You, If the physical is there and the mental isn't there, that's when, you know, you're probably doing the kid and the organization at the service if, you, if you're pushing too fast. It's, it's the flip side of it when you go to the collegiate side. And I think it's why we've seen a draft here, well, more so this year than ever, but really over the last five to ten years, that is tilted more to the collegiate side because um, – you have a better chance to fast track somebody when they when they come out of college, you know, eight out of nine out of ten times as opposed to the high school situation. One because of physical and mental maturity, but two because they've been playing against in many cases a, a level of competition that's equivalent to A ball or double A right away. So when they get into those positions, it's no different than they were than they were in before. But I think, I mean, short answer to your question, I think it really depends on the individual, um, and and that's that I for me, would be one of the hardest things for the scouts to determine is you can go out and look how fast a guy is, how hard he throws, what the physical tools are, but I don't know that there's a game more mentally grueling than ours. And because of that, if you can't handle that piece and the, the list of those that couldn't, that have all the physical tools is, is way, way long. But if you can't handle the mental piece, and the physical piece is only going to take you so far. You know, covering the SEC – this is a conference that's flushed with cash. They've got great television contracts. Uh, they're, they got stadiums. I remember the first time I ever went to LSU. At that point, watching an LSU football game, they had like 80-something thousand. It's now over 100,000. The football money, the basketball money, basically filters down to everybody else. And just talk about, and I, I don't think a lot of people in Major League Baseball realize that when you start talking about Rapsodo and the and TrackMan and the high tech cameras and the technology, that really started in college baseball before it even got to the big leagues. And a lot of it was done in the SEC, and a lot of it was done because they got a lot of money in those athletic departments. You're right. That's part of it. Um, so Wes Johnson's a pitching coach for the Minnesota Twins right now, but previously was a pitching coach at Arkansas. 
And when Wes got to Arkansas, and Wes is just a, a track man savant. Um, he was, I mean, to the point that, that he would work with track man to fine tune theirs to, to see what exactly fits from a, from a baseball standpoint. And I spent about two hours with Wes a few years ago and went into it and said, just assume I know nothing about track man. Tell me how this works, how you use it, how it benefits players, how you individualize it. And it was one of the most entertaining two hours and really educational two hours I've ever had in baseball. Um, but ultimately, major league teams were sending their guys into Arkansas to learn from West. And it was all under the radar because nobody wanted to know. But the reality was he was as good as anybody in the country at taking that data and then breaking it down and saying, OK, this is what it means. And this is how you can make someone better because of it. And he simplified it for me in one way and essentially said, that is great because it shows me what a guy does that's better than most others. And then we try to do more of that. Pretty simple. So can you spin a fastball and hold plane more than most others? Great. Let's use that more. Does your breaking ball spin at a higher spin rate and efficiency than most others? Great. Let's throw that more. And it's, you know, when we were playing, it's like that, Guys that come back to the dugout and say it feels like the fastball's rising. Well, the fastball wasn't rising. It just wasn't sinking as much as it's basically everybody else's fastball. Now this data allows those that really know how to interpret it, um, it allows them to go back to guys and, and really fine-tune what they do best and ultimately do more of that. You know, let, 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 let's end on this. Coming, you know, you and I are kind of from the same era, and if you were a guy throwing – I don't know, 92, 93. Wow, that's throwing pretty hard. Now we're living in an era where every guy coming up that, you know, especially bullpen arms, everybody's throwing like 100 miles an hour. What changed? How did this happen? Well, driveline's part of it. Um, conditioning is part of it. Um, and I think a lot of it is is a mentality change within baseball, but especially at the major league level, to where velocity is is the number one. I mean, that's the number one tool, and then with that, let's try to teach everything else. But with driveline and and really, I mean, those that are similar to driveline, with their, I mean, I wouldn't say singular focus, but one of their their massive focuses is to increase arm strength, and they've, they've been able to do it with programs. I don't think anybody has changed our game more in the last decade than driveline, honestly. Um, and then those that have taken it and, and gone further. You know, the Jaggers of the world that um, Allen for years has been long toss, long toss, throw more like, you know, let's let's grow the arm as much as we possibly can. And we've seen it at the major league level become the most important tool. There's not a lot of two-seam change-up guys anymore. They, they just don't exist. If I went into the draft right now instead of 20-whatever years ago, um, there's no way on God's green earth that I go where I did. No chance. Because a two-seam guy that throws a changeup and can spin a breaking ball okay, yeah, that goes into swing pass now. We look at it very different when, than we did before. Um, but I think training is the biggest reason. The other is the importance of the swing and miss at the major league level and every level. Like that is the first thing that everybody's going to look at. And it's a lot easier to get swing and miss if you throw harder because it's, it's just tougher to time it out. Well, you don't think you're a first rounder anymore? There's no chance. There's zero <laughs> chance. No, and and I I am very comfortable saying that. And and given the arms that I see right now, there's no way in the world I'd draft myself in the first round. No way. 
Um, I mean, I, I'm looking at 17-year-old kids throwing 99 miles an hour at a barn in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, no, I, I would have, I would have snuck in there in the third or fourth round and had to trick them for a few years to get to the big leagues. Times have changed, and and there's good and bad to it, but it's the reality of it. Well, I, I got to tell you, you guys did a fantastic job with the draft, and, and I know we want to get the draft to Omaha, and hopefully, we'll have that next year. But you know. When I think about the kids that aren't at Omaha when they get drafted to have the uh, computers on with their family back in their homes, I think this is the new norm. What, what, what the the raw emotion we saw? I, I hope we see that going forward. You guys, you guys did a great job, and and I think this was big for college baseball to watch. You know, all these kids out of college being drafted was really, really special. So. Thank you for entertaining us on ESPN. We really appreciate it. Be well, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. All good. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Coach, we really appreciate you coming on. It's always a special day when you're able to move your players on into professional baseball. No question about it. You know, so happy uh, for Michael. Uh, You know, talking about a guy that academic All-American. I always like to plug that about him, but just really, really good baseball player. And, uh, you know, I think his, just what he can bring to the table just lined up perfectly with, uh, with the A's and, uh, you know, and now it's, uh, his chance to get out there and compete and try to get to the big leagues. You know, I'm glad you bring up the academic part. And it's one thing that I've always respected about Georgia tech is that it's a great school and, and it's not an easy school. This is not something where guys come in here and you're just, you're just trying to keep guys eligible and move them on. It doesn't matter what sport. I mean, it really is a great inst- institution that we have in this country and you got to be a good student to go to tech. No question. You know, and I tell everybody all the time that, uh, you know, like back in the day, I coached at the University of Michigan, a, a great school. Uh, but there was probably some programs at Michigan that we could put a player in that, you know, wasn't uh, an academic All-American and he could get through there and get his degree. At Georgia Tech, there's no place to hide. Uh, you know, Michael's an engineering student. He's minoring in uh, computer science uh and carrying a 3839 and being an all-american baseball player so you know i i kind of kid him he's a model student athlete he's a poster child for georgia tech athletics and uh couldn't be happier for him talk to us about his skill set what are we going to see when hopefully we get back to some time of normalcy uh, i'm thinking next year spring training what kind of player are we going to see very instinctive player so uh, you know, he played a lot in the infield in high school. Uh, you know, we have kind of played him more in the outfield than the infield, even though he has been, uh, you know, in the infield for us. But the last two years, the thing that just sticks out is his bat the ball skills. He doesn't strike out. He puts the ball in play. He was a lot stronger this year than he was last year. So I think in a bigger sample size of a 56 game season, plus some playoffs, you would have seen more home runs, more doubles. Uh, he's a plus runner out of the box. Like uh, if the infielders don't make plays uh, and don't get rid of the ball, make an accurate throw, he's going to beat it out because he can really run. Uh, he can steal bases. Uh, he's very smart, but he, he's a heady, heady kind of instinctive baseball player. You know, you said something about infield, outfield, and the conversation that we have constantly with Bob Melvin – 
our skipper, is with more bullpen guys and less guys on the bench, versatility really is the name of our game now. And when you can do a lot of different things, if you can play infield and you can play outfield, that means you're going to get a lot of at-bats. I kind of like hearing that. So what you're telling me about Michaels, this is a very versatile guy that we could probably put him all over the diamond. That's what I think. You know, we kind of, I call them super utility guys that you just plug them in and they're going to go play and they're going to play very well. And I don't know why I'm blanked on it, but it's a kid that uh, he was an all-star last year with Kansas City. Uh, Was an infielder. I think they were going to play him in center fielder uh, this year. And Michael kind of reminds me of that kid because I saw that kid play at South Carolina. And, uh, you know, we, we hope Michael. You think of Whit Merrifield? That's him. Yeah. So so just similar body types, similar players. And, uh, you know, you hope Michael gets to that level where he's an all-star someday. But I do think that uh, you could play him a lot of places. And you're 100% right. I mean, it's a manager or a head coach's favorite problem to have is where are we going to play this guy today? You know, we had Witt on the program towards the end of the season, and he was approaching 200 hits. So if you can tell me we're going to get a guy that's got 200 hits in his bat, uh, we're, we're in for that all, uh, every day, all day. Yeah, I wish I could promise that. I can't, but uh, it would not surprise me, let's put it this way, because, I mean, we nickname him the machine. He's a hitting machine. And uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if he's able to do that someday. What's it like for you to, you know, you, you, you bring in a young man, you know, you talk to the parents, you say, you know, send your, send your child here. I'm going to educate him. I'm going to make him a better person. We're going to win with him. And then when he finally gets drafted or graduates, what's that like for you, the gratification as a head coach? Well, it's tremendous. You know, I mean, I have told this story earlier today. So, you know, with the coronavirus, like there's a lot of things that, you know, Georgia Tech's trying to do, human resources are trying to do. So one of the things came across my phone today that uh, it was a stress relief uh, seminar. And I'm like, yeah, I might be able to use that today because you sit through those five rounds and, you know, it was great to see Michael go, but we had, you know, some high school kids that you're sweating out, hoping they get to school. Uh, you know, our shortstop, who's a really good player, went undrafted last night, which really surprised me. Uh, so you feel for him and his family because he uh, he's the captain of our team. And uh, so, you know, you kind of hang on every pick, you hang on every round. But at the end of the day, you're so happy when they get picked and they get an opportunity to go pursue something that they've they've wanted to pursue since they started playing baseball. You know, uh, my old head coach, because I played college baseball, played at San Jose State, Sam Perraro was my head coach. And and one of the things that uh, he's most proud of is his graduation rate. And a lot of you guys, you know, what, what a lot of people don't think about, they think you guys just about winning games. But there's, there's, you're an educator. People forget about that. Your job is to not only win with these guys, but your job is to graduate these guys. Hundred percent, and and we talk about it in recruiting, and it probably hurts us with some guys uh, when we you know spend time talking about academics and what Georgia Tech will do for them someday when they have to use their degree, and you know most of them have to use their degree, uh, and even really really good players that get drafted and go play in the minor leagues and then don't make it have to use their degree. So 
I sleep really well at night knowing that we have our guys covered both ways. We're going to give you a top 25 baseball program that you're going to compete at the highest level. You'll have every opportunity to be a pro if you keep working and make that happen. But at the end of the day, we're going to make sure you walk out of here with a degree. Uh, and that degree is going to have great value throughout not only the United States, but the world. Yeah, I was a bad player coach who had to use his degree. <laughs> <laughs> we all, yeah, we can all say that. <laughs> so this is a very tricky situation. And I'm wondering for you how you'll handle this. So you don't go in the first five rounds. You're a junior. And now the only thing they can offer you is $20,000. And which, you know, there's going to the money's going to be taxed. It's not a lot of money. It, it, if you got a guy and you probably have this situation, what are you going to say to that player? Do you come back for your senior year or do you start your professional career in baseball? I mean, I'll be just dead honest. I would tell all my guys come back and play your senior year. Your season got cut short this year. You're probably not going to have a minor league season if you sign for 20. Uh, and you're right. It doesn't go very far. Uh, so come back, enjoy your senior season, try to take us to Omaha. And and then, you know, hopefully you get that same chance again next year. If you don't, then it wasn't meant to be. I mean, it was just, you know, use your degree and and move on. And I'll be quite honest. So my my son is in that category. So he was a junior on our team, uh, didn't get picked yesterday. And I have told him because he's going to get calls and people have kind of reached out like, you know, would you sign for 20 grand? I'm just like, just tell him no. And I think most of the guys on my team are probably a no. Uh, but there'll be guys that different situations, just, uh, you know, different spots academically that they're going to take that. And then whenever minor league baseball resumes, then they're going to go try to live out their dreams. So, I think it just depends on your situation, depends on where you're at in school and what school you're going to. And But I would tell all my guys that I think they're better suited this year just because there's not going to be a minor league season to uh, to come back. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you got to think. I mean, we, might, we don't even know when we're going to see minor league baseball. If you look how hard it is just to get baseball going – we have no idea when minor league baseball, I would come back for my senior year. No question about it. Uh, how are you planning? And I don't know if you have the answer yet, but you're probably going to have some seniors that are going to stay with you that we're going to move on. You're going to have an incoming freshman class. You're going to have a bigger roster. What are the plans? How are you going to handle that? It's going to be very difficult. And, and uh, you know, we had kind of a, little call with my whole staff uh, today on, you know, the, the, the tricky part is managing 11.7 scholarships. So, you know, we probably had three to four high school kids yesterday that on a normal draft, maybe we lose two of the four, all four are showing up in school. Uh, you know, we had some of our juniors that in a normal draft, they probably fall somewhere between rounds five and 10. So they don't get picked. So they're all back plus your seniors. So it's a, it's a very difficult balance to get to 11.7. And I would bet you that 85% of the power five schools are going to have to have some difficult 
conversations to try to get that number to 11.7. The, the NCA did give us a little relief on roster size that if we wanted to carry more than 35 guys this year, we can. Uh, the number is kind of you could have 27 players on 11.7 scholarships. They, they said you can now divide that up amongst 32 guys. So those are two measures that will help us manage it to a degree. Uh, but it, it is, it's, it's a tough juggle uh, with the talent that honestly is getting put into college baseball this year. I've been trying to tell my audience because they don't realize, you know, because everybody thinks about, oh, it's the big leagues. Everything happens in the big leagues. But really, the greatest baseball technology started in college baseball. You guys were really the first to start using, I talk about all the time, Rap Soto and TrackMan and these high-tech cameras and everything that's going on. And uh, Scott Emerson, our pitching coach, we, we, we've, we've gone round and round about this. It was really college baseball that was at the forefront of this technology. Obviously, ACC, SEC, there's a lot of money because of football and basketball. But just talk about how the technology in baseball really grew up at, at the college level. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that is that, uh, you know, and I think you're seeing it because I think you're seeing pitching coaches and, and hitting coaches that, probably were always uh, college coaches that, that didn't get many opportunities to go be a coach at the major league level. And you're seeing that now uh, kind of across the board where college pitching coaches are getting the opportunity uh, to advance their careers and go coach at the major league level. So I think you're right. The technology, uh, you know, definitely was probably getting incorporated uh, here, uh, you know, maybe a little sooner than pro ball. But now, if you're not up to speed with it, you're behind. Uh, and we use it a lot. Uh, certainly, I've, I've made some hires the last couple of years with a kind of recruiting coordinator, hitting coach that had just got out of pro ball that really understands all that on the hitting side. And then I was able to hire a pitching coach last year that had been the pitching coordinator for the New York Yankees the last five years. So in charge of every pitcher in their organization, and he is really up to speed on, okay, here's what the numbers are saying, but okay, now here's how that applies to you. Here's how I can make you better. Uh, and, and I think it, you have to have a blend of both. That's just, you know, I'm old school. That's my philosophy. You have to understand it. You have to be able to use it to teach players. But at the end of the day, you also got to be a coach and you got to be a teacher and you got to be a psychologist to get the buy-in on the player side. Well, obviously, you've had great success, and let's end on this. Uh, what you've done in the ACC is second to none. But I want to take you back to Miami of Ohio. And <laughs> how many guys were you facing in Miami? Were you a hitter or a pitcher? I was a hitter. How many guys were you facing throwing 98 to 100 back in the day when you were at Miami of Ohio? So, obviously – this is probably pre-radar gun, you know, <laughs> but, but in saying that one of them pitched for the Oakland A's back in the day, that was probably the hardest thrower that I think I faced. And his name was Bob Welch. Yeah. And he pitched at Eastern Michigan and, uh, and then the other part. So we, then we played double headers and, 
So in the first game of the doubleheader, they had a guy named uh, Ochinko who ended up pitching a lot for the San Diego Padres. He was a lefty. I was a left-hand hitter. So you're pretty much an ofer in the first game off of Ochinko. And now here comes old Bob Welch. And so here's the story. My first two at-bats against him, he threw me three straight fastballs, and I swung and missed at six in a row. So I'm 0 for 2, two strikeouts. I come up for my third at-bat, and I end up actually making contact, foul off a couple pitches, run the count to three and two. And he threw me that nasty breaking ball on three and two. And I basically just, I can, to this day, know what I said, like, oh, okay, I'll just walk back to the dugout because there's no way I thought you were throwing me a curveball there. So three punch outs. My fourth at bat, thank God, the guy got on in front of me and I got a chance to bunt. And so I (laughs) bunted him to second base. So here's the story in that doubleheader. And I tell it to my players all the time. I punched out five out of six at bats. <laughs> so, so pre-radar gun, I'd, I'd just say this. Bob Welch was, you know, the hardest thrower. And and I'm guessing he was probably, you know, 94, 95 back in the day with a nasty hammer. You know, I don't know what you guys are doing, but all, I, all these guys that keep coming up, everybody's throwing 100 miles an hour. It's it, it's It's shocking. You know what? You know what we say since we're in the South and Chick Fil A's right here in Georgia. It's all the steroids in the chicken is making these guys develop faster. <laughs> Coach, great stuff. We truly appreciate it, and uh, congratulations on all the great success that you have. I mean, four-time ACC Coach of the Year, and how many times you've won the conference and the great success in, in, in the playoffs. Uh, we appreciate it and uh, keep doing a great job, not only being a great coach, a mentor, but being an educator. We appreciate the time and you take care. Be safe. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Good luck to you guys. Hope we got baseball soon. Wednesday is known as hump day for everyone during the work week. But on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. Boy, I remember that draft like it was uh, like it was yesterday. 1955 like years ago? 1965, <laughs> the television show, when they drafted the kid from Marion, Illinois, they had all the highlights <laughs> of you in high school. Uh, what a production that was when you were in that very first draft. <laughs> Listen, I saw I saw the young man's uh, video at the A's drafted number one, uh, Sotis from the catcher, and man, at times changed. I, you know, believe me, they didn't have anything close to that. Uh, we had black and white television, so you know they're not going to have any any uh, videos of anything happening. But uh, good to talk to you, Townie and Cody. How you guys doing today? Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing great and uh, waiting for this pick, uh, number 58 for the A's. Uh, and, and we're going to have Tyler on tomorrow. We have his father on uh, coming up here at 3 o'clock. But, but, you know, I wanted to, you know, get into when you signed the life-changing money that you guys used to get back then. It's like these guys, these guys make nothing compared to what you guys got in 65. <laughs> oh, come on, you're, you're being too funny today, Townie. 
You're being too fat. What, 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 what is the, what is the slot money for number one now? What is, what is it for the slot for the number one? I, I know this year maybe has changed, but let, let me just say this. They started the draft in 1965 to avoid what they're doing now, to avoid giving bonuses. So Rick Mundy, who was the number one overall uh, out of Arizona State, got over 100000 He told me it was more than what was reported, so let's say in excess of that. I was number one by the Cleveland Indians, seventh overall, and I know the, you know the guys who were drafted after me, Bench and Nolan Ryan, and I think there was one other notable but I got $28,000 plus $7,500 college uh, money or money to go to college for $7,500. And that was it. Um, and if I made it to the big leagues because I signed with Rawlings Sporting Goods, I got a set of golf clubs, which I got. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, and, and you know, it, it was it's totally different. And and people say, well, it's all a, a matter of the time in the '60s versus now. Said, <laughs> you know, give me give me six or seven million dollars because you know, Tony, I, I and I talked to Eric Kubota about this, and, and um, who is the uh, director of scouting for the Athletics and, and does a tremendous job. And I and I said, Eric, when when you draft somebody and you're giving him five, six, seven million dollars. How do you know he wants to play? Because let's just say that you, you give the government pay taxes half of that, you're netting a lot of money. And if you if you do that the right way, who cares whether you play baseball or not? And he brought up a good point. He said that's up to the scouts to talk to the players, to talk to the parents, to see how much they want to play. And, and you know, they do want to play. And I think they would not be going to the extent, whether it's a high school player or a college player, to go through that. I, I'm just saddened that it's only five rounds this year, and there are a lot of players who probably would have been drafted are not. But again, this, this year is, is an anomaly. It's, it's an aberration. It's, it's all you want to say. And uh, it, it is happening right now. But for uh, the young man, um, I, I'm glad you're having him on because he's a catcher. He's left-handed hit a catcher. Sounds like he's got some great tools. The, the, of course, the uh, pedigree is there with his father having played in Major League Baseball. So I, I think it's all there. And uh, out of Turlock, I think that's even more special because he's close to home and uh, the A's were able to draft him and do that. But, Tony, times are much different. But I will say, and, and again, I'm repeating what I said about Barry Zito. He said the key is to get to the big leagues as quickly as possible. That's why he signed as quickly as possible. And, you know, again, this year you, you may not get to play. I don't know what they're going to do with the players um, who they do draft and sign what they're going to do with them. Uh, but, you know, I, I do know it's a much different time than what is in, but I, I am very happy that I was able to play the time that I did and to be on this show with you every week because of what I was able to do in baseball. So I, I thank, thank you for that. Uh, you were, well, yeah, you were number seven, right? Seven overall. Yes. Cleveland had the seventh pick. Okay. So uh, your pick value would be uh, $5.43 million. <laughs> Oh, don't kill me, man. <laughs> uh, Scott uh, Torkelson, uh, number one out of Arizona State, his pick value is eight million uh, four point two. Yeah, so see, there, there's you, you take half of that, 4.1, uh, 4 give the other to all the taxes, whatever you want to do, whatever. But, you know, that's a lot of money net that you can you can play around and do a lot of things with that to where you know forget about whether you make it or not just with a bonus should be able to determine 
whether you're set for life or not. Maybe you take care of everybody. I don't know. But but Tommy, times were different. And, and again, I, I give a lot of credit to the players of today uh, for being able to be drafted and, and going forward because um, it is a special time. If you're good enough, and, and obviously the players who are drafted in the first round are good enough, that they, the, the clubs who draft them, feel that they're good enough, that they're going to be in the big league sooner than later. And that's, where, that's what it's all about. You know, there are probably less than 20,000, 20,000 in the number of years this game has been played and had an opportunity to play Major League Baseball. And that in itself is worth every penny of it. Whether, you're, whether you make a lot of money or not, it's just the, the, the thrill of, of having a baseball card, having uh, the opportunity to play Major League Baseball. And, and, you know, in my case, you know, I could have been drafted by somebody or uh, I could have signed with somebody. I've never, never given an opportunity to play that much in Major League Baseball. I signed with Cleveland. They drafted me. And Tommy, see, at that time, because I was a high school player, and just like it, it's Tyler Soderson, right? Tyler? Yes. And, okay, so if he has the bargaining power to go to college, if I'm sure he's got a scholarship waiting if he wants it. So there is some bargaining power. But the thing is, if he goes to a four-year school, he, he cannot sign until three years into that four-year college uh, program, according to the rules, unless they have changed. Junior college, it's different. So in my, from my standpoint, I wanted to play professional baseball. I was drafted by Cleveland. And if I had not signed with the Cleveland Indians, I would have gone to school and it would have been three more years before I would have been able to be drafted because I would have gone to four-year school. And there's a possibility I would have played another sport considering the number of offers I had to play football. So, uh, you know, it worked out well for me. I'm not complaining. But it is interesting to hear the slot money that you just talked about for the seventh overall. Um, but, hey, I, again, I'm, I'm happy with my life and what has happened with baseball. I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change a thing. Well, Ray, I, I think about you. You're drafted in 65. You're up in 67. So yeah. if this, this, this and, 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 and he's a uh, he's a big kid. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, let's say that bad is that good. What I mean, you, Sean Murphy is only twenty-five. <laughs> if he's up in two years, Murph's in his prime. What do you do? Well, I was thinking exactly about that when I saw that a catcher was drafted number one because Sean Murphy. Now, granted, he's had some knee issues, and and maybe the the A's were concerned. There are concerned about those issues, but Sean Murphy's an outstanding catcher, and if he can stay healthy. And I hope that he's like Walt Weiss was when he was with the A's. And unfortunately for Walt, he went through a number of injuries. Uh, rookie of the year, shortstop for the athletics, and had a number of injuries. But as his career progressed, he got healthy, and he had a great career. And let's hope Sean Murphy is in that category. He's had some, some knee injuries and surgeries. And let's hope he gets over those or is over those and can continue his career because he does everything you want to see in a catcher. And – the fact that it's now a, a an offensive position, as we have talked about, Sean Murphy brings that to the table. So the, the thing that Soderstrom has uh, going for him, being a high school player, and, and it's always been four to six years out of high school to get to the big leagues, two to four out of college. So I don't know that the A's are going to rush him. If he comes up, and, and you have to realize that being a drafted player, and there are some rules that unless you're put on a 40-man roster, you're protected. So they don't have to worry about the options. You get three options. And if you're put on a 40-man roster, 
and you go to the minor leagues, that's one option. Every year that happens, you get three total. Now, Todd Van Poppel insisted on, or his agent insisted on a major league contract, which put him on the 40-man roster, which meant that in his first three years that he played for the athletics, every year he was optioned to, uh, to the minor leagues, that was one option. So at the end of three, he had to be in the big leagues. And I remember, I think it was against the Chicago White Sox, that he made his debut, and they just hammered him. You know, here's this this great curveball pitcher, but, you know, there's a lot of maturity that is necessary, and I think especially for a catcher, to learn how to call a game. Uh, I, I think it would be important to find out if Soderstrom was able to call his game in high school. Did he do it himself? Because that in itself is very hard for a catcher to learn how to set up hitters, to call a game. Um, Max Stassi's father insisted on he call him calling his own game out of um, – up in Northern California, I, I can't think of the town. I'll, 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 was it Yuba, I'll, I think? Was you, it? You, uh, um, uh, it, it's in that area, yeah, yes. But 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 when he came and he was going to think go to UCLA and sign with the Athletics, and he got uh, money as if he had come out of college, from what I understand. But but the fact that his father did insist because his father knew that if he was going to get to the big leagues quickly, he had to learn how to call a game because that is difficult. You know he. Soderstrom seems to uh, all accounts to have an above average scoring arm. His hitting from the left side is a positive, seems to block balls. Well, all those things are fine, but when it comes to calling a game, that in itself is very time consuming for a catcher. And that's why from his standpoint, don't rush him. And if, if Sean Murphy is that point, then by the time maybe Sean Murphy is eligible for free agency, you know, that, that affects also maybe the thought process of the athletics and, how they're going to draft somebody, maybe thinking about if Sean Murphy is that good, maybe he's not going to be around after six years. Who, who knows all these things that take place? Or maybe Soderstrom is a good enough bat that he can go to another position or DH. Who knows? But uh, it, it is an offensive position, but I think it's admirable and, and very good from the standpoint of the A's selecting a catcher, especially a left-handed hitting catcher, somebody from the area. I, I think that's that, that kudos to the athletics for doing that. You know, Ray, the thing is, you know, they guys don't want to be in the minor leagues that long. And if you're legit, guys are getting here really early, like you did. Yeah. I mean, guys are here like two, three years. I mean, the, the really, really good players. And you just wonder. But, uh, yeah, versatility is the name of the game. you got to be able to play multiple positions. I think what you're hearing a lot, Tony, is that when a club – uh, scouts and drafts a player is not necessarily the position, but the best talent. And evidently, this kid has enough talent. Left-handed hitters are good. I mean, I mean that. Uh, yeah, I think there are a lot more right-handed hitters than left-handed hitters. And the same goes for pitchers: more righties than lefties. So, you know, let's assume he's the best athlete, and let's assume Sean Murphy is good enough and healthy enough and stays with the Athletics long term, and he's the catcher. Uh, unless they went to a platoon where they had Soderstrom as a left-handed hitter and then Sean Murphy as a right-handed hitter go that route. I don't know that that would be the case. I think you need to have an everyday catcher, 130 games, uh, be your everyday catcher, and you don't want somebody in the big leagues catching 32 games as a backup and especially as a number one draft choice. But I think it's an overall athleticism, if he's that good, that maybe he can play another position. Uh, who knows what's going to happen to Matt Olson in the future? Can this kid play first base? Uh, so, you know, there are a lot of a lot of possibilities. But, again, the fact that he's out of high school and the A's have the time to 
develop him into whatever position they are thinking about. Right now as a catcher, that's great. He'll learn how to call a game. Again, very important for him to do that. But uh, the versatility is important, but the talent that a kid has coming out of high school, especially, he's going to get the opportunity once we get all this other stuff settled to get time to be in the minor league system. And, you know, when I came up in 67 and 68, that was the month of September. I came up full time in 69. That was my first full year. So essentially four years in the minor leagues. And I, I was able to make it. But at that time, I called my own games in high school. I didn't have guys, uh, coaches calling pitches uh, for me in high school. So I, I learned that myself in high school baseball, where I, when I got in professional baseball, I already knew how to do that. We didn't have the scouting systems that they have now, all the analytics about what a, what a hitter can or cannot do. Uh, so, you know, that in itself helped me get to the big leagues quicker than maybe some others right now. But uh, the aluminum bat, we didn't have that. We used uh, wooden bats. That's important because the way you set up a hitter with an aluminum bat is much different than with a wooden bat. So a lot of differences from the amateur ranks to the professional ranks. But uh, first and foremost, getting signed and get him in the system, develop him. And I think that's what the A's and and they're hopeful of doing that, especially with that kind of money and with the number one selection. Uh, What's that football player's name? Connor Murray, I think, went to the diamond, the uh, signed by the A's and ended up going to play football. So you you don't want to waste that. So I'm sure that Eric Kubota and whoever scouted him are assured that he's going to play baseball and they hope in the Oakland A's organization as a professional versus going to college. How great was it yesterday when Rob Manfred said, 100% we're going to play? We don't know how many games they're going to play. I was I was ecstatic when I heard that. Uh, I, I still am hopeful, as we talked last week, that the owners and players can get together because if it's forced upon, personally, I'm saying this, if the commissioner is forced to make that decision, that to me is not good. There will be baseball, which I'm ecstatic, and I think the fans will be ecstatic. You know, television, NBC Sports California, who does our games, will be very happy. Uh, A's Radio will be very happy. A lot of people will be happy that the baseball and, you know, in October baseball, especially with postseason. But it would be great if they can come to some agreement because what I don't want to see is what happens this year carry forward to after the 21 season when the collective bargaining agreement expires in December of 21. Because if, if they can't come to an agreement now, I think this is going to continue into that point. And again, I've said before, if, if they're concerned, both sides are concerned about this year, find some documents, you know, saying that, this is for 2020. This does not factor into 21. Let's get baseball on the field. And I think it would be best if it were done by both the players and the owners to come to some sort of agreement, number of games, monetary. But, you know, Tanner, we talked about it again last week. 40 million people filed for unemployment. A lot of people out of work. And, um, you know, granted, if, if they do play and fans aren't in the stands this year, they still want those fans to come back in the future. And if, if they're arguing over money now, how how urgent or, or, or how uh, happier are the people going to be to come back and pay the, the the fare, the money to go back and sit in the stands and pay salaries of, of players and owners they know have been quibbling over millions of dollars. And it happened today. The PGA Tour, they're going to get all the love. They're back playing. They're yep. going to be they're going to be leading off Sports Center and all that because they're the only sport going. They're going to get yeah. a lot of love, especially this weekend, uh, playing the, at Colonial Country Club. 
you know, they're going to be on CBS and everybody's going to be watching. Well, they are. And I think the ratings are going to be very, very high for, for whatever sport it does play. I think NASCAR also is coming back soon. They're running right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, you're, you're going to see these live sports and, you know, granted the, the history of the game of baseball. And again, something we have talked about, which is, I, I think there's, there's no sport better than baseball because there's so many highlights that you could play. But people want to see what's happening today, live, live sports. And, you know, going into October, you know, it's funny, Tony, 1989, the unfortunate earthquake that occurred last time the A's won a world championship. And, and I've, I've been kind of thinking that under the current situation, wouldn't it be proposed that the A's win the World Series because there's not going to be a celebration. It's going to be a trophy, you know, the world championship and the whole thing. But uh, similar to 1989, the last time, no parade. Uh, no celebrating the clubhouse, but uh, I think it's important to get baseball back. And, you know, there is going to be baseball. It's just a matter of, of how much and when it's going to start and, and get something going. But I agree with you with what uh, the PGA is doing, what NASCAR, you got the NBA talking about doing it, the NHL finishing their season. Uh, so it would be nice that the A's could, could pinpoint a date, let the players return, get themselves ready and say, okay, this is where we're going to start the season. If it's a half a year, so be it. Play baseball and, and let's go forward. Yeah, well, we got got to get them out on the field, and then once once you do, Ray, uh, it's really gonna be a crazy season. It's Is gonna it? happen. <laughs> it's gonna, you know, it, it's gonna. The sense of urgency will be like something. I I don't know what it was like in 1981, but I just think the sense of urgency will just be off the charts. Well, in the 81, it was two half seasons, two half seasons. That's not going to occur this year. It's going to be whatever time remains, that's going to be the season. And because the strike occurred in 81 after the season had started, so they took the first half winner and then the second half winners, and that's how they determined it. This year, it will be different because how, how can you have two halves when there's only one? And I think that's where it's going to be difficult. But again, you look at the and there are a lot of writers who are talking about, let's say, the 50-game schedule at the 50-game mark. Look where the, um, uh, the, the, the world champions, the Washington Nationals, they were so far behind. I think they were 19 and 31 at the 50-game mark. So, you know, under those guidelines, if it gets down to that number of games, they wouldn't even have been talked about uh, as far as the world champions. So uh, I think it's, it's important. It is going to be – it's going to start out instead of a marathon season. Once they begin, it's going to be a sprint. And it will behoove the teams, the players, to be able to get off on the right foot to get the start so that they can play and do well because it is going to go fast. Uh, one of your ex-teammates recently passed away. Very, very sad yeah. and very tough. Claudio Washington, who was with you uh, winning a World Series in 1974, just, you know, Whenever we hear these, um, it, it's just, it, it, it's really tough. You know, Tony, I, I agree. And, and I know that I was in the hospital at UCSF Medical Center. Dr. Charles Wilson was getting ready to operate on my neck. I got a call from Charlie Finley, and he said, I know you're going to be out a couple of weeks. I'd already been out some, a period of time. He said, I want to bring this kid up from Birmingham to get his feet wet. His name was Claude L. Washington. So, you know, I'd always said that as a catcher, uh, catchers create opportunities for players. Normally they're going to be catchers because of the number of injuries that a catcher has throughout his career. 
broken fingers, whatever, knee surgeries, whatever it might be, and somebody comes up. In that particular situation, it was Gene Tennis was playing first and I was catching Joe Rudy and left. So when I got hurt and ready for surgery, Gina went behind the plate. Joe Rudy went to first base, Claudette Washington went the outfield. And I, I remember distinctly, but he was a tremendous talent. Uh, we, we'd look at him and he had like a, a, um, a clothes hanger body. His, his, his shoulders were very wide. His waist was very narrow. So just a straight down, uh, used a heavy bat. He hit the, and, you know, he played for several clubs, but he came up with the athletics at a very young age, but he hit the 10,000 home run for the New York Yankees in their career, 10,000. And that was at the Metrodome in Minneapolis. And, and I remember reading about it at the time, the fan threw the ball back. They said, thank you very much. That goes into the archives of the New York Yankees. But, you know, uh, Claudel was a great player, great speed. And I know that Mike Norris, who came up during that same period of time, they were great friends and, uh, He'll be missed. He's a very quiet, quiet person. Uh, I don't remember him doing a lot after he retired, especially with the athletics and reunions. Uh, he, he just and he lived in the Bay Area, but a tremendous athlete. And it's, it was very sad to hear about about him. But, Tony, I know you have, I think you said Steve Soderstrom coming on. And I, I don't want to jump ahead of what you may be asking, but I do want to commend you. Uh, and thanks to Cody, I was able to hear the great interview you did with Rod Carew. What a tremendous, tremendous interview that you did with him and his life and, and what he's going through, what he's gone through uh, with the loss of his daughter and getting a heart transplant. And, and I knew the story of the transplant that he got, but I didn't know until I listened to the interview that he had met the young man when the kid was 11 years old. That was amazing to me that he knew him. And the kid said, you're Rod Carew. I want to be a professional athlete. And Rod said, get your education. And here, this young man, unfortunately, passes away at a young age, and Rod gets his heart and his kidney. But a great interview, Tony, just a tremendous interview. So I commend you for that. But uh, Rod Carew, a tremendous talent. And you brought up something about stealing home. I think he stole home 32 times. And I know Commander Cody can look it up. But uh, it's a lost art, stealing bases in general. But how about stealing home? And especially with the killer, Harmon Killeroo at the plate whenever he did it that one time. And I see, I didn't know they had a sign either. Uh, but I think too, that's why uh, most relievers or most well, pitchers in general with a runner at third, they don't pitch out of the windup. They pitch out, uh, they pitch out of the stretch because a right-hander can look at him. Now I remember when I think it was Elvis Andrews stole against the A's and Ryan Bookter last year, a year before he was a third runner at first and Bookter took the time and see if the, if the pitcher's, a left-handed pitcher with his back to the runner at third, he can get down the line and he can't see him. And all of a sudden, if the first base runner draws a throw, yeah, I can walk home. Uh, I saw with the Giants when um, um, Omar Vizquel did it against uh, a left-handed pitcher. So those things happen. But Rod Carew was the last true player of stealing home. So again, commend you for a great interview you did with him. And I thank Cody for allowing me to be able to hear it. Hey. Stealing home's a scary deal. <laughs> Especially if the hitter doesn't know it. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> I mean, a left-handed hitter, yes, but normally this is going to happen because, you know, the, the catcher can can pitch out, reach back, whatever, and do that. But, I mean, Harmon Kellerbrew, and what was it that, what, the next day they put uh, they put a sign that said that now, now hitting in left field. Rod Carew, after being driven out to left field by Harmon Killebrew. Oh, no, that's that's scary. That is scary. But, uh, no, and, and Rod, Ray, Rod, Rod is good. Ray, he wasn't wearing a helmet. 
who was oh, oh Rod. That's right. That's right. Think about that. He was. I mean, you're stealing home with yeah. one of the most powerful guys in baseball history, who forgets you're not wearing. And if he he takes, I mean, you're not wearing a helmet back in those days. No, that that's true. And and if if he did, it would have been a liner. A lot of a lot of well, I know Sam McDowell did. They would take the inside of the cap, the soft cap, and put a liner that maybe is about two inches uh, wide and insert it into the lining of the hat, the soft cap. So it's kind of a liner, makes the hats kind of stand out. So it's a permanent. Sam McDowell uh, could not afford to be hit in the head, so he wore that all the time. So uh, if a player did that, but still, that's very, very little protection. Nothing like what they're wearing in today's game. So, yeah, have the power of Harmon Killebrew with Rod coming down, I, I and, and the fact that Harmon confirmed it, that's like a squeeze play. You know, a sign is given by the third base coach and the hitter confirms it. And then all of a sudden he comes down and he swings away. Oh, that, that's scary. That's very scary. All right, Ray. It's always great having you on a Wednesday, but today's Thursday. We'll be back to Wednesday next week. Be safe. Have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you next week. Look forward to attending the best to Commander Cody. You guys do a tremendous job and uh, continue, continue what you're doing. It's outstanding. Thank you. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to hear your voice. Thank you, man. I'm glad to be a part of your podcast. Appreciate you inviting me. Well, I think about your great career as an all-star and a two-time gold glove winner and, uh, you know, second in the Cy Young Award. I mean, when we, we've been looking back at different periods of 80s baseball and one of the great pictures is when all of you guys were on Sports Illustrated, the five aces. That was a great time in A's baseball. And it, it truly was. And, uh, you know, I, I'd just like to give a shout-out to God bless he's not here any longer, but Billy Martin had a great, great, great part in that. You know, they talk about how many, you know, when, when I'm looking at your guys' stats and – you know, you're looking at, you had 24 complete games in 1980. You had three, 33 starts, but you completed 24. You were 22 and nine with a 2.53 ERA. We just talked to McCaddy. When you guys took the ball, you, you weren't looking for the bullpen. You were looking to go all nine. Well, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, it's not uh, a, a knock on the bullpen. But, I mean, as kids or in the minor leagues, that's what you did. You went completed games. The, the relief pitcher wasn't really something that was was looked uh, looked upon like it is today. Uh, uh, fortunately, when I made it to the big leagues, we had Raleigh Fingers, and we did have a great bullpen, Paul Lindblad. But you were, actually, when you took the ball, you expected to go nine innings. You know, the, the only problem for you is you showed up one year too late. Uh, you showed up in 1975. It would have been great if you could have showed up in 74 and got that ring. I, I often wonder why was that. <laughs> the good Lord blessed me, but I sure wish you would let me get in a little earlier. I tell you, that would have been great to have a World Series ring to add to my uh, my trophies and glow gloves and things of that nature. And you wore, and you had the green glove, right? Isn't that correct? Yeah, I was kind of a bit, I guess what they call a hot dog. I guess I was a hot dog in those days. <laughs> 
you know, that's a great thing about A's history. When we, you know, we talked to Ray Fossey and we talked, we had Reggie Jackson on and, you know, a lot of the great players from the seventies and Charlie Finley's paying him to have long hair and mustaches and you've got the green glove and Vita blue. It's just, it, it, the, the organization in the seventies and the eighties was just so colorful. Well, you know, and that was a tribute to Charlie Finley. You know, he allowed that. And even, you know, he paid him, uh, which wasn't much, but he paid him each of them $100 just to grow mustaches and stuff. So, you know, where other teams had the uniformity of having clean-shaven faces and you had to wear your socks a certain way and things of that nature. So we had none of that. So it was great. And he just let your personalities be what they were. You know, we had Steve McCaddy on re- recently, and we asked him this question. Is some people wonder you guys pitching all those complete games and throw and having so many pitches and so many starts, did that affect you long-term? He said, no, that injuries, they were random injuries that, that, that your five got that led to some careers being shortened. Is that true? Well, he might have a point, but I have a different opinion and it's all opinionated. So there's the facts on it. We'll, we'll probably never know. But what I attribute it to is uh, I think that was in 1981. Uh, Billy invited an immense amount of minor leaguers into camp, okay, so they could learn the system. And what happened was we left spring training with 11 innings. I think I had 11 or 14 innings and stuff, which was definitely not enough innings to be prepared to start the season. I think that might have been 1982, if if I'm correct. But that led to, you know, to me, that led to, uh, and then, you know, you're still going out trying to complete all the games. And so not being in shape, and then you already had the bulk of 1980 and 81. So I think that's what happened to me. That would make sense because usually you want to be throwing, I mean, even in even in today's baseball where these guys are not completing games, by the end of spring training, they want to be able to go at least about six innings and you're saying you only had 11 the entire spring. That sounds very dangerous to me. Yeah, it was. It really was. So that's what I attribute my arm trouble to. So then, then maybe there is something to it then. Cause that's, um, cause you were, you, I mean, you're talking about 82, 83, you, you're entering your prime at 27, 28 years old. Exactly. You know, and, and so, you know, uh, we actually had a pitch count. Uh, and so, uh, I think, uh, let me see, uh, myself, Langford and Keo averaged under 125 pitches for nine innings. Uh, and so I think that didn't have, you know, the, the complete games. Now, what could have happened was we did throw, I think all of us through, uh, most of us through a 14 inning game. I know I had four extra inning games, a 10-inning game, 11-inning game, a 12-inning game, and a 14-inning game. So that could have constituted to it, too. You know, so like I said, we'll never actually be able to pinpoint exactly what happened. Yeah, and obviously modern medicine is better. The treatment that you guys would have had would have been better if you were pitching today. But I can't imagine what it would be like in baseball today what that conversation with the manager and the meeting after the game, if a manager left a starting pitcher in there for 14 innings, can you imagine what would happen to a manager if he did that in today's baseball? Probably be fired right after the game, most likely. 
But I think we started something that that ended abruptly because you know with the with the immense salaries these days, you know, uh, you can't just have your start pitcher go down like that and then pretty much you know be out for the season or wind up with surgery and then you know usually after surgery you're really never the same. So uh, the day of the bullpen, I think we brought that in. You know, and uh, I think that's what we can attribute to baseball today. You know, you can really make the case looking at your numbers. I know you finished second in the Cy Young Award, which is a great achievement. But year a year at 22 and nine with a 2.53 ERA, 33 starts, 24 complete games. You threw 284 and a third innings. I mean, you can really make the case that you you should have been the Cy Young Award winner. Well, I was just about to say that. So, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Uh, so, I wouldn't have to sound so egotistical. But at the same time, yeah, I had beat, Steve Stone did win the Cy Young Award that year, and I beat him in every other category, every category but wins. And of course, the Baltimore Orioles won the World Series that year, so that that helped him out a lot as well. So, uh, so winning percentage and wins is what he beat me with, and. I think he wound up with, I think he was 25 and seven or something like that. Um, so, you know, I mean, what can I say? The thing that hurt me most was three riders left me off the ballot totally. And I lost by three votes. So if I have gotten a third place vote, which was equal to one point or the second place votes or the first, the second place votes was two points. Then the first place vote was worth three points. So had any of them voted correctly, I would have won the Cy Young. So, it, oh it, so that was, and then what was ironical about that was the writers were from Kansas City, Detroit, and Anaheim. And I think I was like 3-1 and one against Anaheim, maybe 3-0. and oh. And uh, Kansas City, I was 4-1. and one. And Detroit, I pitched a one to nothing shutout against them. So I don't know what that writer was looking at that night. But anyway, that's the way it went. The fact that you were left off those ballots is an absolute travesty. When you look at these numbers, how someone couldn't even vote you third place is a joke. It's a joke. It really was. So they made a mockery out of the whole thing. And it just, you know, I was wondering who, 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 how did they even be able to keep their jobs after that? Because that was just, that was a catastrophe as far as my life is concerned. That would have changed my whole life if I won that Cy Young Award, without a doubt. Well, we'll always remember what a great year that was in 1980. And, of course, you have your, your baseball school in Northern California. Tell us about your baseball school and how we can help grow it. Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm a part of the Black Aces, okay? And the, and the Black Aces are uh, 15 black African-American pitchers who won 20 games or more in a season. And it's an illustrious group, uh, Ferguson Jenkins, Bob Gibson, Don Newcomb, Doc Gooden, people like that. And so after I retired, and then I started looking around, and, and, and the precipitous drop of, of, of African Americans in the game was alarming to me. And then I thought to myself, wow, will there ever be another 20 game, black 20 game winner again? And this led me to start having the baseball um, academy. Now, it took more than that because what I also found out that over 90% of African-American players, uh, after two years of being out of the game, you wind up broke. 
And I was one of those people due to an IRS problem. I had an agent that wasn't paying my taxes, and he put all my money in the insurance policies that he was because he was an insurance man. And so the investments that he made were just tax write-offs. So it was pretty bad. But anyway, so what I wanted to have was a financial literacy course, and then I wanted to have an academia that uh, after-school program where the kids could have a study hall. And then it led to me... Right now, I have a domestic violence program, teenage domestic violence. I have a mental health program. I have uh, financial literacy, uh, social-emotional, which deals with uh, drugs and alcohol, and, and it's partially a religion course. Uh, and uh, I have a black history course, so these kids can learn their heritage and have some pride in themselves and understand where we came from which right now is going on right now serves a big purpose because of what's going on with this pandemic racism that we have going on recently in the world right now. And so it's a, a health and wellness thing. And so it's very complete uh, program. And so, and it's free. Uh, and so uh, I have some online classes as well. And uh, so it's just a, it's a pretty, pretty thorough wraparound program. How can we help you grow this? Well, uh, I have a travel ball team that I'm trying to get off the ground. And again, it's about the funding, and it's in 11 cities. So we're starting in San Francisco, which is where I'm born and reared from. I came out of the Western Edition, which used to be called the Fillmore. Uh, and uh, we come over to Oakland, and then we have Berkeley. We have uh, Richmond, San Pablo, Vallejo. Fairfield, Pittsburgh, Antioch, and Marin County. And so, you know, that's, 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 uh, both, most of the league is basically about 80% black. And, and so this is what I'm trying to do to get black kids to play baseball again. But at the same time, the college education is even more relevant because let's face it, maybe 2% of them will, will ever get drafted and, and go on to play professional baseball. But we can get many more into college, and and so this could stop some of the incarceration and the deaths that go on in our community, the drugs and the alcohol, and the, all the other dysfunctional aspects of life that they partake in. And if you don't catch these kids by 12 years old, then they're ready for the streets. The streets get them. And so having a formal education will teach them that there's something better in the world to strive for. Everybody always needs help and they always need funding. How can people get a hold of you so they can help you grow this? Well, right now I'm working on a brand new website. I'm, I've gotten rid of the, uh, the other one and because of the additional things that I have in the program. But uh, uh, my email is MikeNorris56 at gmail.com. And my website should be up in the next two weeks. And I'm going to keep the same one, which was Success. Well, when you get that up, you contact us and, and we'll start promoting it for you. Because what you're doing is great work in the community and our community needs more people like you. Well, you know, I, I've been blessed. You know, God is so good. You know, I went through the drug and alcohol aspect myself that partially went to an ending of my career. And so I've cleaned myself up in the last 20 years, 21 years. I've been free of drugs and alcohol. And so it's it, it's just time now that I give back to the community and be able to educate and not make the mistakes that I made. 
Mike, thank you so much for the time. Be safe, be well, and uh, we'll have you on again once you get that website up, and we'll help, we'll help you promote and fundraise. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate that, and I enjoyed the interview. You guys asked great questions today. Thank you. Himbo on a Monday. How are you, buddy? It is good to see your face, and it's good to hear your voice. It's also good to see your hair. Uh, how are we over there? How's it looking? Is it, is it long enough yet? Luscious. Uh, I'd imagine that you're just wearing the visor at this point to support it because otherwise you won't be able to see anything. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, it's like I, I almost could have a ponytail at this point. I we, hate to We've made it. this joke. For those who can't see, we've made this joke for like the last month and a half, and, it's, and, and it continues to get worse you know, progressively every single week. So I, we'll see how long this runs for us. But this is, this is not like the longest running joke in show business. You are arguably wearing the greatest shirt I've ever seen. It's a shirt <laughs> with your face all over it. Yeah, so uh, I turned 30 uh, last month. To surprise me, um, my wife purchased uh, shirts of, of uh, my face on them for the whole family. And for, again, for those who can't see, like this isn't just like a, you know, a white t-shirt with my face on it. This is like 30 of me, like all sort of morphed into a shirt. So like the shirt actually like looks nude. Like the shirt, like the color of the shirt looks like a nude color. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen people wear these before for professional athletes like you know like you know super fans but like usually don't you don't see people wearing these of themselves but uh you know these are desperate times they call for desperate measures and we have to get through a lot of laundry today clearly this literally has made my day so it's the same picture of you and it's all <laughs> over the shirt like it's the like you can barely see like half your face on the sleeve but it, yeah. it, it, it's just all you Everywhere on the shirt. Yeah, I'm, I'm, like I'm cutting myself off. It's like they're sort of like overlapping, overlapping me's. It's hard. It's really hard to describe. You really have to see it to believe it. And we actually took a family photo on my birthday of this with like all six of us wearing it. And it looks like something out of a horror film. Um, I'm not going to post that one. Uh, I, I think we need to do this with Cody's face. <laughs> we were actually surprised how expensive this was um so i would say it's probably not worth the investment unless you're gonna you know turn it into a full family affair maybe it can be a show giveaway during these times like it could be something you know like you know winner of my trivia contest gets you know a, a picture of hembo's face like you, you, you might be able to turn it into something uh it could be part of like the you know part of the giveaway bag yeah, well, obviously we, uh, we we can we your wife knows how to do it, so uh, we can figure out how to make this happen. All right, let's get into a little bit little trivia. Yes, I have uh, to, to to spare us at least to start from the self mutilation that is Major League Baseball uh, fighting against the union. I have prepared prepared some 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 trivia questions to at least uh, get our mindset off straight, so I don't get myself too heated because I will I'm I'm in a position uh, I, I think to present some pretty strong opinions. But we'll start with the trivia. My first question for you today is this. Who was the first player elected to the Hall of Fame whose primary position was designated hitter? Primary position calculated as played at least half of their games at that position. Half of their games. You, in order to qualify. That's a lot. Yes. The Hall of Fame qualifies it differently than I do. The Hall of Fame right now only has... Uh, two players listed as a Hall of Famer uh, uh, whose primary position was a DH. There are actually three, and this person is the exception. Uh, it's, I, I guess for me, because the thing about DH is it allowed a lot of older guys who could still hit but couldn't play in the field to be able to, I mean, whether you're talking about Reggie Jackson, Paul Malder, George Brett became a DH, Dave Winfield, but the guy that played it the most, I, I would have to go Edgar Martinez. Edgar Martinez 
is the first person the Hall of Fame qualifies as this. Frank Thomas play. Frank well, uh, Thomas is the correct answer to my question, at least. That's how the Baseball Reference Play Index qualifies it. But Edgar Martinez is, is is recognized as the first DH by the Hall of Fame, and of course, as we know, Harold Baines was next. Although, uh, like you said, Paul, you, you, you're all over this question. Paul Molitor, another person who played DH more than any other position, but it comprised less than half of his game. So I'm going to give you that one. Very well done. You were sharp last week, too, if I'm not mistaken. So you Yes, I was all, I mean, I think I was four for five last week. Last week, you were, you were, you were cooking with gas. Uh, th- this one's going to hit too close to home for some of your fans, but we'll see if you get this one right. So which team did the A's beat the last time they won a winner-take-all postseason game? That'd be the Minnesota Twins. That is incorrect. The last team they like, so we're talking winner, winner take all games, sudden death in the postseason. That is incorrect. This was, this was, I thought, see, I thought are we going back to the 70s? Yeah, bro. That, 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 game, that game against the Twins was not winner take all that you're thinking of. It would have been the Mets then in 73. That's correct. The last time the A's won a winner take all postseason game was 1973, Game 7 against the Mets. They're 0-9 in winner-take-all games since 2000, and they didn't yeah. have any of those games between 1973 and 2000. Like I said, hit too close to him. It, 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 is, it, is a, it is a stretch where you start looking. Uh, the, these last three wild-card games, you go back to the early 2000s. Uh, they have, we haven't been the clutches of teams, let's just say. Won well, a lot of games. A ton of games. I'll actually have a question in that regard later on. But you wonder, like, how how fluky is that? Like, it's not something based on team building. It's not something based on anything other than sheer luck. Like, in any given baseball game, we know that no matter how bad your team is, you have at least a 40% chance of winning that game. Based on probabilities, you you, you would have won four or five of those games. But instead, 0-9. The Yankees beat you three times. Tigers beat you, you know, two years in a row. That that's a that's a that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, clutch is actually not the word I would use to describe that. I would use I would use unlucky. Uh, Verlander, that damn Verlander. The A's are one of three teams to win at least ninety five games in each of the last two years. Which are the other two teams to do that? The last two seasons, you've won over ninety five games. You and two other teams. Astros. The Astros is correct. I thought you'd get that one right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a reason we're in the wild card game. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, every, everything's coming together nicely for us today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll go Dodgers. Dodgers is incorrect. That would have been my guess too, which is why I asked you the question. No? Remember two years ago, the Dodgers had to, had to play into play into win their division. The correct answer is the Yankees. The Yankees. See, that was the. But that was the. It's, of course, to me, it was either the Yankees or Dodgers. That's it. Yes, the Dodgers had like 200 win seasons, but in between, they had like a 91 or 92 win season, which disqualifies them from that. That's a nice sneaky question. That's very on brand for me. Yeah. Right, here's the next one for you. Who was the last pitcher to throw a perfect game? Roy Holiday. Roy Holiday. <laughs> Cody, I love it when Cody points and, and then comes up with like Satchel Page. <laughs> it was uh, it was Felix Hernandez with the Seattle Mariners. One of you one of you is correct. Which answer are we going with here? I'm going with Roy Holiday. Cody's right, kid. Cody's right. Roy Holiday was twenty ten. Felix Hernandez was August of twenty twelve. You may remember in twenty twelve. Philip Umber threw a perfect game in April. Matt Cain threw a perfect game in June. 
Felix Hernandez threw that perfect game in August, and we haven't had one since. That was a very bizarre. Look, it's a very fluky incident. Oh, yeah, uh, Dallas Braden? Braden was, yeah, Braden was 2010, and so was Halliday. So those are like, those are your last five perfect games. And we, and nothing since. That's sad. Yeah. That is, it was like a rash of perfect games and then nothing since. It's such a fluky thing. Like, it's obviously so based on, based on chance. Because I mean, there's only been, in the history of Major League Baseball, 23 of them. So, like, this is extraordinarily rare. No hitters are becoming somewhat common. Let me just do a quick search here. Because no hitters, if I'm not mistaken, like, I've, at least it feels like anecdotally to me that like we've had a lot of them lately. Ver- Verlander threw one last year. Scher- Scherzer seems to throw a no hitter every other game. So it's 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 funny. I like people celebrate hitting for the cycle. We obviously celebrate no hitters, but the like, perfect games are are the, the, you know the truly great accomplishment. Let's see. When uh, when was Mark Burley's? Oh nine, right before that. So, so you, you see, they're so ready to remember all of them. So since 2012, oh my gosh. Okay, so, so over the last since 2013. We've had 24 no hitters, but no perfect games. 24 no hitters. That that is, you know, it, <laughs> it, it's kind of shocking because everybody strikes out so much. Yeah. You think we'd see it more, but all right. There's there's obviously a lot of. I think I think I think the the increase in walks also though obviously contributes to this sum, and and pitchers aren't nearly as 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 likely to go deep into games either and like you always run into this conundrum with the combined no hitter dynamic and there's a few of those obviously in there too and, right. and, and how about this yeah you can look on the list and go how many of these perfect games are not thrown by all-time greats <laughs> i mentioned to you philip umber philip umber is like might, might be like one of the worst pitchers to ever do this it's it's bizarre like it's homer bailey homer bailey is another one of these guys who like he, he went he got like a hundred million dollar contract uh and pr- pretty much on the basis of these things. Let me just run through some of these names for you since you mentioned it. So we got Philip Umber and Matt Cain, Dallas Braden, Roy Halliday, you mentioned. Mark Burley had a nice career. Obviously, Randy Johnson did it. David Cohn, David Wells, Kenny Rogers, Dennis Martinez. These are some you know fairly well-known people. Tom Browning, Mike Witt, Len Barker, Catfish Hunter in 68. Koufax did it. Jim Bunning, Don Larson, of course. Charlie Robertson. Addie Joss, all-time great. Uh, all-time leader in WHIP, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lee Richmond, and, and the first John Montgomery Ward. You're, I should have asked you today who was the first person to throw a perfect game. I'm sure you'd have given me John Montgomery Ward of Belfont in Pennsylvania, 1880. A great Jeez, John Montgomery. Who doesn't know that? That's I figured it'd be a gimme. So like I, I want to make sure I'm challenging you today. <laughs> what you what you what year is that? In the 1880, he was pitching for the Grays against the Bisons. So you can see like it was just that was a good ball club he beat. A nice. <laughs> A lot of pop in the middle of the order and some punch and Judy guys at the top. <laughs> it's amazing what we have recorded here at the Messer Street Grounds and the home plate off that day was Charles Daniels. He was he was pretty wide. He was yeah. pretty wide to pretty wide to lefties. Uh, at that point, so that this is so 1880. That was like 13 years before the mount was moved to his current distance. So like they're like throwing underhand at this point, and like the batters can tell them where to throw the ball still. <laughs> hey, perfect game. Are we gonna really compare that to, to to Felix Hernandez? I'm not sure. It's I'm not sure it's quite apples to apples. This this might be the greatest perfect game when you're like trying to help the guy hit and you still throw a perfect game. He beat he beat Pud Galvin that day, who's a, a legitimately great Hall of Fame pitcher. Pud Galvin was a stud, so that must have been a really nice tight battle that afternoon. It's good stuff. Who knew that we'd, we'd dive into that today? How many more we got? I got another question for you here. All right. um, this one I feel like I may have asked you in some way, shape, or form, but if not, there are three different players that have won an MVP award as both an infielder and an outfielder. I'm going to give you the option of naming any of them and give you the credit. He had to win it as an infielder and an outfielder? 
Yeah, so multiple MVPs, at least well, one in Rob, the NHL. Robin Yount. Robin Yount is correct. What positions did he play? Very well. Short played. center field. Short and center field, that's correct. You are fire steady, kid. Uh, I don't know. Um, Let me give you the errors. Like, think 30s, 40s, and 50s. <laughs> and, and, and both of these guys were first baseman when they won as an infield, as infielder. I'm giving you a three-decade hit here. Come on, well, come on. What, else, what more can I do? <laughs> I have no clue. Stan I knew Musial, the one. Stan Musial did it. Hank Greenberg did it. Stan Musial won one as an outfielder and a first baseman? Yeah, Stan Musial, if I'm not mistaken, was the first player to, pl- to, re- uh, to play a 1,000 games in the infield and the outfield. And the numbers suggest he was actually a really good defender at both of them. Uh, really underrated all-time great player. He, he, he will have the one stat. That will always go down as the most mind-blowing stat of all time <laughs> is the fact that he had the same exact amount of hits at home and on the road. It's it's an incredible it's an incredible note. It's it's any 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 baseball fan who grew up reading those books like we did eighteen fifteen plus eighteen fifteen equals sixteen uh, thirty six um, thirty. One thing I want to mention quickly about Stan Musial, which I think I think you could argue. This is, this is obviously not where you intended to go today, but I think you could argue Stan Musial is the most underrated all-time great player. Yeah. I like sharing this story with whoever will listen. So in, I think it was in 1955, around that year, the Sporting News set out to create uh, an all-decade team uh, in the 10 years after World War II. Because um, obviously during World War II, a lot of, a lot of you know, play was compromised because of players leaving for the service, etc., and um, one of the voters for that award was Joe Cronin. Joe Cronin during that time, during that entire decade, was the manager and general manager of the Red Sox. So he got to see the, the entirety of Ted Williams' prime. When he was asked who the best player of the last decade was, he didn't say Ted Williams. He said Stan Musial. For someone to have watched Ted Williams play every day for a decade and come to that conclusion, I think, goes to show you how respected Musial was at the time. I think it goes without saying that he was an all-time great who's often underrepresented in history. Why why is that? I think as it relates to Stan Musial, like so the the, the great all-time some of these great all-time players obviously with, with with Williams he has like the most famous stats ever. The other the other legendary players, a lot of them at least, were all these Yankees. So Musial who was sort of an unassuming personality from sort of an unassuming town and though he did play for what was a a legacy franchise, he didn't he didn't carry himself like it. Stan Musial is this guy who, like, who in the offseason had this Italian restaurant in St. Louis and like, sort, you know, became sort of active in, in politics. Like He was just sort of the everyman, right? And I think because he didn't uh, achieve five, 500 home runs, just gets, lift off, gets left off a lot of those lists and also wasn't an outstanding postseason performer either. So it's funny because like Ted Williams is someone who, who, who I think his closest direct contemporary is Stan Musial, but they're thought of on their like, – even, even – I think it's fair to say and safe to say that people consider Joe DiMaggio a greater player than Stan Musial. For Joe DiMaggio, for much of his life, he was introduced as the greatest living ball player at all these events, and Stan Musial was at a lot of those events. To me, that's it's dishonest. Like Stan Musial is a greater player than Joe DiMaggio, and in, inarguably, at least, a comparable player to Ted Williams. Yeah, it's not like Stan the man played in Tampa. <laughs> No, uh, the, the, the Cardinals are the most successful you know, franchise in National League history. And I think that goes without saying. Uh, and he's their best player ever. Like Stan Musial was baseball's perfect knight, as the, as the then commissioner put it, when he got you know, his statue erected. Like he was a legend. It's just curious how history goes. Like at the time of his, during his career, Mel Ott, Mel Ott was voted the most popular player in baseball. But now he's like an afterthought in any sort of historical 
uh, you know, run around that you make. You know, people always forget about Mel Ott. At the time, he was considered the, the same goes for Christy Matheson. I don't know why history remembers people the way it does. It's a very curious exercise. But those are a few examples of guys who I think at the time were considered all-timers. And as history went on, I think celebrity sometimes overshadows production. And those, in, in, in the case of those three players, I think, that, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they've written books and they've just been so romantic about the great Dimage and all this <laughs> guy, and like, his numbers don't even sniff Stan Musials. They're not, they're not close. I, there's, there's so much, especially at the time when they played, so much value, so much player value was sort of decided by the few writers that were sort of in, not in charge of, but, but purveying the most information. So, like, obviously the sports media now is so vast and there's just so much inundation. But then, like, so much about a player's public portrayal or persona was just whatever those writers decided. So Joe DiMaggio, who was a highly respected figure, who uh, the writers romanticized about, who, uh, who he and he was very much protected as a result of it, has this like sterling historical reputation when, as I think the more we've learned about him, he wasn't necessarily the, you know, the, the, the perfect knight, if you will, that history has remembered him as. But I think like those guys at the time have so much say in it. Like if you were really good friends with Grantland Rice, then history was just going to remember you fondly. And if you played in a smaller market and if you didn't kowtow to reporters and if you said, you know, anything controversial once in a while, they didn't like you. Rogers Hornsby is a really good example of that. Rogers Hornsby was, is one of the most uh, hated players in baseball history. You look at his the back of his baseball card, guy might be the greatest right-handed hitter that ever lived. So it's funny how, how it goes. But I think history over the course of so many decades wrote itself based on the, the opinions of these few people. And now we're just sort of left to live at those consequences. Well, and I think of Derek Jeter. I mean, MLB <laughs> Network just did what, 64 hours or whatever the hell it was about Derek Jeter. I'm not saying Derek Jeter's not a great player. I'm not saying he shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. Obviously, he should be a Hall of Famer, and he's a great player. But there's a difference between the greats and, and, and that upper level. I Is he even a top 10 shortstop all time? He's a top 10 shortstop all time, only if you only if you build in the offense the way that – so this is, this is an important distinction to make. Like – I think people give Derek Jeter a lot of credit for having stayed at shortstop, right? My retort is always, he shouldn't have stayed at shortstop. It was overwhelmingly clear that Alex Rodriguez was better than him at the time that he came. And it became very clear that Derek Jeter should have probably moved to center field or a corner outfield spot or first base or even second base much like years, like probably in his early 30s. I'm not giving Derek Jeter, it's like the people that argue Jeff Ken is a great hitting second baseman. Yes, he was a good hitter, but... He wasn't a good second baseman, so why am I giving him credit for hitting well in a position that he was not good at playing defensively? And Derek Jeter, it wasn't just a bad shortstop. Like, to be totally candid, Derek Jeter is, like, one of the worst defensive players in the history of Major League Baseball. Wow! Like, no, 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 it's, it's not. It, it, uh, you know, I'm one, who is, I'm one who is sort of a beholden to the numbers. We have all these modern ways of measuring defense now, and Derek Jeter cost this team something approximating 250 runs which over the course of his career is something approximating 25 wins. Derek Jeter destroyed his team on defense. Now, they still won all these championships, right? They had a bad defensive catcher, a bad defensive center fielder. That didn't stop him. I think it goes to show, like, maybe we overvalue defense. Maybe, maybe that's something that we, you know, we prioritize early in the game's history because there were so, much, so many more balls in play. And now it doesn't really matter that much. And I'd much ha- rather have a shortstop that accrues 3,000 hits 
and plays defense like Jeter than I have a shortstop like Omar Vizquel who couldn't hit the bright side of a barn, but, you know, feels everything in sight. Hitting is still by far the most important thing. So, yeah, of course, taking that into account, he's a top 10 shortstop. But to be clear, he was an abhorrent shortstop defensively. Could you say that and wear that shirt and walk around Manhattan <laughs> saying Derek Jeter stinks at shortstop? <laughs> um Definitely not these days. I was thinking about this, and I know you did a, a thing for Buster Only about money and players, but just if it is true that the owners really only want to play around 50-something games because they don't want to lose a ton of money, and the money comes once you get into the postseason, that's when the TV money kicks in, then really it makes sense that you really don't start playing until like August. I think um, I think there's this misconception right now going around, and it's it's easy to see why. But like because there's all these pieces every day about it, and because people are so desperate to have baseball back. To be clear, like this is the order in which this is the order for for people yearning for baseball to come back. It's the fans first. It is a big step. The players second. And then the owners way down here at third. Like that is exceedingly clear. The play, the, the fans want baseball back more than the players want to play, and more than the owners want the players to play. That has become overwhelmingly clear. It is June eighth. June eighth. The NBA is going to return July thirty first, and they already have their return to play proposal down pat and approved. Baseball's plan was to to, to return July fourth. They're not close. Can't like they're like I suppose they could get close between now and the end of the week or, you know, theoretically this stuff could happen immediately. But we asked Buster only on our show this morning, what, like, what's our deadline here? And he said three weeks ago. <laughs> so like, that's, that's what we're dealing with. But I think it's like, you're at, you're exactly right. You hit the nail on the head in saying that collectively, collectively the owners want to play less because they know the regular season is going to cost them money. And they know the postseason is going to make them money. And I understand why the players are heated about it. The numbers you mentioned earlier, I was chatting with Cody about this as well. The numbers make it overwhelmingly clear that Tony Clark is operating from a position of inferiority right now. The players got raked over the coals, raked over the coals when it came to the last collective bargaining agreement. And I have some numbers for you to sort of put this into perspective. Okay, so there have been uh, three CBAs since two, uh, 2003, in addition to the current one. During the current collective bargaining agreement, the average player salary has declined, has declined. And the one before that, it increased by 29%. And the one before that, it increased 18%. And then the one before that, it increased 25%. For there to be a collective bargaining agreement in which player salary declines is a damning indictment on the, on the players' union. It just is. So with the, with the CBA coming to a uh, close at the end of next season, theoretically, we'll, we'll, who knows what we'll be at that point, I understand why the players are outraged because the owners are owners who are operating from a position of strength as it relates to the CBA are now deciding to pinch pennies over this. But you sort of understand where they're coming from too, because they've made their, they've sort of made, made it clear, like without the fans, we're going to lose all this money. Last week on this show, on this program, you, we, we talked about this. I said, they're going to propose something like an 80 game season and, and an 80, per, like and 20% more salary cut. So it's sort of 80 and 80 today. It looks like it's about 75 and 75. I'm surprised. I'm surprised the players are acting like this is so outrageous. This, to me, is a is an act of, of of goodwill and compromise by the owners who, up to this point, have been, I think we'd agree, far too stingy. But we're to, it, it is June eighth. It is June eighth. This is the middle of the baseball season. These guys, I think, need to get their act together and come to the bargaining table in good faith as well. I understand that they're angered by the by the process that this is something that should have happened in April, but. 
it's time for the players to meet these guys in the middle because this is a this was what I would describe as a good faith gesture and a big leap, a big leap from where we were just a week ago. Um, and I don't really see it any other way. Let me tell you this. It's going to be a bad look come Thursday because come Thursday, we're going to hear now on the tee, Rory McIlroy. Now on the tee, Dustin Johnson. We're going to say on the tee, Tiger Woods. And we're going to see, you know, NASCAR is one thing and not everybody watches NASCAR. But once the PGA Tour is teeing it up, everybody's going to be going, okay. We, as you mentioned, there's a plan for the NHL. There's a plan for the NBA. Football, now football is going to have the same problems as baseball. Because at some point, football, if they don't have luxury suites, if they don't have people in the stands, they don't have parking and beer and food and everything, they're going to go to their players and say the same thing. But as of right now, football's planning to go. Training camp, it's at everybody's facility. Going to do exhibition. Going to do the regular season. And baseball's still sitting out. Man, it's going to be a bad look. It's, it is, I, I wouldn't say that it's already beyond repair, but I think there's already going to be a large contingent of people that hold this against them no matter what happens. But think about this, like at minimum, we've been led to believe that players and teams are going to need three weeks. So, and t- like, and we are not, best I can tell, all that close to reaching this, reaching a conclusion here. You, you, are, you are fast forwarding three weeks from whenever that happens. So like, we're just losing such valuable real estate because right now baseball wouldn't have any competition, but I'll tell you what, like, there's going to be the, the NBA is going to ramp up at the end of July and people are going to be yearning for that. Like that's that those are in, those those games are all going to matter. And then they're going to play like all day basketball for the month of August. It's going to be incredible for basketball fans. If, if baseball has no skin in the game at that time, uh, baseball's bro, you know, it as well as I do. Baseball is going to lose fans that they'll never get back. And this is already a sport that's lost. You know, attendance has dropped 10 million in the last dozen years. Like this is a sport right now that is operating from a position of inferiority without this struggle. So I understand that we have two entrenched sides and their season hasn't started. So the NBA is operating from a position of, of advantage in that sense because they didn't have that much farther to go, at least in the regular season. But to me, this this gesture today by the owners is a good enough one that we should that, that, that you know the players and them should be able to reach a decent sort of good faith conclusion. Like I think we can both agree everyone's losing here. But like if you if you end up if you end up reaching a point where it's it's beyond repair, like you're you're, you're going to lose way more than just you know ten fifteen twenty million dollars you know for each team, which ultimately is what we're talking about here. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars for these teams, and like that's how much it costs to sign a fourth starter. Not for a club like yours, but for most clubs. Uh, we need to start himbo.com and start selling that shirt. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that would be a terribly successful venture. But I, but I will say, if you guys want to start, you know, putting together, you know, a little variety pack for the trivia, I'm happy to contribute my smile. <laughs> and it'll all go to COVID relief. Well, let me say this. Let me say this. You are you're studying up. I can tell. You're reading your almanacs. You are spending a lot of time on the baseball reference play index because you have been much better lately. And you're, you're, you're deconstructing my logic better with our trivia questions. You are reading my, you're reading the room better. You're taking your time answering. Like you are onto something here. And I'm, I'm impressed with Cody's hit rate as well. Who sort of, who comes in on his white horse every once in a while to save you from catastrophe. It's because I've been drinking a lot. 
you know what? This, uh, when you're when you're a man of our ilk, there's nothing better than, than to drink a lot and just watch Ken Burns baseball. That's what I've been doing. So it seems like it's working well for both of us. You should see my Costco cart when I'm checking out. <laughs> <laughs> I've been loading up, my friend. Uh, okay. Uh, times call for call for desperate measures. By the way, <laughs> I, I did I did look this up out of curiosity before I let you go. I was I was curious, like if. If we do have a a seventy six game season or something like that, like who who might be the likeliest person to bat four hundred? Um, and it surprised me, no one has batted four hundred through the first seventy six games of a season since Tony Fernandez in nineteen ninety nine. Nomar got close. Chipper Jones sort of got close. Cody Bellinger got close. Yeah, that, that like I was going to ask that as a trivia question. I thought to myself, like you're not getting that right. Like there's, I could give you five hints and you're not going to get that right. So not. Oh, I'm Tony going like Tony Gwynn or Wade Boggs. Of course, that would be like that would be the natural guess. But Tony Gwynn batted. Was batting below 400, uh, you know, through the first 76 games of the '94 season. But Tony Fernandez, the last player to bat 400 through 76 games, who'd have thunk it? You are the best, my friend. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you next week. Same to you, boys. Take care. He's one of the great players of all time. He was American League MVP. He was American League Rookie of the Year. An 18, an 18-time All-Star. Won the Roberto Clemente Award, a seven-time batting champion. He is in the Twins Hall of Fame. His number's retired there. He's in the Angels Hall of Fame. His number is retired there also. It is an absolute honor to have truly one of the greats, Rod Carew, with us here on A's Cast Live. Rod, I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Chris, for having me on. Well, you've come out with a new book, One Tough Out, Fought it, fighting off life's curveballs. What was it like putting this book together and talking about your life? Well, it was easy. Um, tough in some parts, but uh, you know, I, I enjoyed doing the book. And uh, Richard Jackson is the one that named the book for me. So, you know, kudos to him. Yeah, you played with so many great players. You mentioned Reggie. Uh, you talk about Nolan Ryan, Harmon Killebrew. Uh, you played on some great teams with some great players. That had to be fun to look back at those times and those relationships. Oh, definitely. You know, um, Tony Oliva was uh, the guy that was my mentor. You know, he took me in as a rookie and as his roommate. When there was room, when they had roommates in those days, and we roomed for about eleven years, and um, he taught me a lot. Taught me how to tie my first tie, how to uh, act on the field and off the field. The acting on the field was uh, a little bit tough, but um, he was my original original mentor. Kilbrew was too. Uh, two great guys, two great personalities, and Tony is the same guy today as I met my first year uh, in spring training. It had to be pretty scary for you. You're born in, in Panama, and to come to the big leagues at such an early age, what was that like? Well, the, the key thing, you know, is that I was abused back home by my dad. And the lady that delivered me on the train was in Panama visiting. So she was on the same train that my mom was on. And I guess I decided to come out and see the world uh, a little bit earlier than I was supposed to. And so she uh, delivered me. 
um, because you know they had they had the black section and and the white section. So the doctor that I ended up with his name, Dr. Rodney Klein, uh, he came back and finished the uh, procedure. And so my my mom gave me his name, and I I must tell you that he took care of me from that day on while I was you know living in Panama. You know, I, I think about your illustrious career and the numbers that you put up that truly make you one of the great hitters of all time. And analytics shows us how great, you know, because we just think about home runs. You only hit 92 home runs, but your career analytics, I mean, obviously a lifetime 328, but you were so productive. You're all around game. That's what makes your numbers stick out. Talk about your game and how you were one tough out. There's no question about it. Well, you know, Chris, the the key thing is that um, we were taught how to play the game the right way. Moving runners over, bunting, hitting, hitting, running. And uh, today, they just don't do that. You have more guys striking out than getting base hits. And so I don't really enjoy it as much but I'm still part of the game. Uh, I just hope that it can revert back to the way we used to play it because I see some things that happen during the course of a ball game that I really don't care for. Um, but, you know, now they're looking for power guys. Um, you know, I could have hit maybe, you know, 20 home runs a year, but I had a gift of using the whole field to hit and I was successful doing that. So, why get away from it? You know, for me to hit home runs, I would have had to try pulling the ball all the time. And um, that's, that wasn't my game. But when I went to the Twins, they said they would like me to get on base, steal a few bases, score some runs. And um, that's what I did throughout my whole career. Your MVP season is phenomenal. You hit 388. You led the league in runs, hits, triples, on-base percentage. You led it in OPS and OPS+. plus. You know, we talk so much, it's, you know, hitting 400. We haven't seen it since Ted Williams. And there were a couple of years where I think you thought about it, when you hit 364, 359, and 388, which is just amazing. What is it like chasing 400? Well, it was, it was tough for me because, you know, I didn't really – uh, get along with the print media t- uh, too well. And so, you know, I, I used to have to get to the ball ballpark extra early so I could get my work in and then have a breather before I went out for regular BP and uh, getting loosened up and stuff for the game. And when writers wanted to talk to me, once I started, that was it. I wouldn't talk to them until after the game. So, um and the only way I came out and and started uh, speaking to writers is because of my youngest daughter, Michelle, who passed away with leukemia in 1995, 96. And I promised her that, um, that I would talk to the guys so that we could get more people involved in um, donating marrow so that other kids can make it. And she said, Daddy, if I don't, if I don't make it, that's okay but help the, all the other kids that, that need the help. So uh, now I'm more open with guys talking to them. 
Well, you have to be so proud because obviously you lost your, your daughter far too young, but the money you have raised, the millions of dollars and, and the people you have helped save, you have to be very, very proud of that. Yes, I am, you know, and uh, she continues to to make me proud by my continued work with uh, pediatric cancer research, which is uh, children's cancer. And um, I go out at night now and I go for a drive just by myself and, you know, I have a conversation with her. You know, I talk to her and I ask her questions and, and just little things like that. And if she misses dad or, you know, how she's doing, you know, we just have a regular conversation at least twice a week. Well, and of course, you've had a heart transplant and you got your heart from someone you knew very well. It, it is a very touching story. I know you talk about it in the book, One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs. But if you could tell that story, it's a it's a beautiful story. Well, you know, I um, I went out one uh, morning playing to play golf by myself. And uh, I had a, a Widowmaker a heart attack while I was playing, but I'm lucky because I was at the first hole. And if I was on the second, no one would have found me alive. But I was able to back my card up to the clubhouse, which was right there, and went inside and asked the lady if she could please call the paramedics for me. And um, so she did. And I think I blacked out. Just when they walked in the door, I blacked out. And so they paddled me and, and brought me back to to life. So um, that was the first time. And then I think when I was uh, on my way to the hospital, it happened again. So, um, you know, uh, I came out of it again. But, um, you know, all I was doing was telling God that I wasn't afraid to die. And I'm going to go wherever he wants me to go, either with him or staying here and continue doing my uh, charity work. So he, he kept me here. Maybe he thought he had enough good hitters up there that he wasn't ready for me yet. But, um, you know, it's crazy because the young man that, that uh, I got his heart and the kidney from, um, he was 11 years old and I... My son played on the basketball school uh, basketball team at school, so I went out to uh, watch him, and I was out just walking around a little bit. And this kid comes up to me and he says, "You're Rod Carew, aren't you?" I says, "Yeah." He says, "Well, I want to be an athlete when I grow up." I says, "Make your studies your first priority." He says, "Oh, I'm a good student." He says, "But I'm going to be an athlete when I grow up." And that's when I first met him. He was 11 years old. And so um, uh, 18 years later, here I am looking for Hart. He had signed with, uh, with the Jets. Then he signed with the, uh, with the Ravens. And he was waiting to sign again with, I think was with the Patriots. And he was working out and he had an aneurysm and his parents lost him. And um, my wife kept, ask, kept telling me, you know Conrad? I says, who's Conrad? I don't remember meeting Conrad. You know, she's got a, a brain, like a memory that's just unbelievable. So 
I, I was fortunate that I was wearing a LVAD, a little machine, for about 14 months that kept me alive. And um, so the first chance that I had to get a heart was from this young man. And we were, we matched up pretty good. And, and then I got a heart and I got a kidney from him. And um, come to find out that he only lived about eight miles from, from us. And, uh, you know, I thank him every day, you know, for sustaining me and keeping me alive and giving me a Maserati inside of my body now, you know, but it's, it's an amazing story. And what we, what I try to do with the book is talk to people and let them know that um, anything can happen, you know, and you're fortunate if you can find someone and, uh, to give you more life and that's what god did for me you know he kept me around for a few more years so i appreciate that fact from from god and also from the ruling family yeah it's the these type of stories i think people need to need to hear during these times it's just a, a beautiful story and I've been told I need to ask you, you know, we don't see people steal home anymore. I mean, that's just something that doesn't happen in baseball. But you have an interesting story. The Hall of Famer, Harmon Killebrew, is at the plate and you steal home. What happened? <laughs> you know, we were playing the California Angels when I was with its twins. And Hoyt Wilhelm was a pitcher. And I figured, you know, maybe if I steal a run early, it was will help us. So I flashed a sign to Kilbu. He was at the plate and um, he answered me. And, you know, Hoyt William was real slow to the plate. And as I'm sliding in, I mean, I beat the ball there. And as I'm sliding in, uh, Harmon started to swing. And then he backed up and he started saying to me, Junior, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm sorry I answered. I'm sorry. So I said, Charlie, don't worry about it. Charlie was my name for him. And um, next day in the locker room, the guys in the PR office had a, a sign, tombstone sign made up and stuck it in my locker, which, which it read, here lies Rod Carew, lying to left by Kittleman. So, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's true, you know, but... Uh, I, I was so happy that he didn't swing because that's the first time that we had come close to somebody swinging um, since I started trying to steal home. You know, you know we, we've been watching a lot of uh, yesteryear baseball on the MLB Network, and I just think about the era of when you played. So many great Hall of Famers, mm -hmm. looking back at those all-star games, so many great African-American players, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, yourself. I mean, there was so Reggie Jackson. What was it like playing in your era? Boy, I tell you, uh, some of the kids today couldn't play in my era, you know, because hitting home runs and flipping the bat and taking their time running around the bases and stuff like that, they would have been drilled or knocked down just to let them know that uh, you're disrespecting the pitcher, um, and there were guys that didn't like it. Bob Gibson didn't like it. Colfax didn't like it. Drysdale didn't like it. You know, just 
some of the great pitchers, they, they kept you loose, you know. And today, if you go inside too much or too close, they're going to uh, give the pitcher a warning or give the, the other book, uh, uh, Doug out a warning also. So it's not, uh, the game isn't played as hard and as tough uh, today as it was when I played. The book is One Tough Out, Fighting Off Life's Curveballs. Rod, I can't tell you what an honor it is to have you on my program as you had a wonderful career. You'd have, you've had a wonderful life. Be well, be safe, and good luck. And we'll promote this book, and I can't, I can't wait to read it. Thanks, Chris. And I appreciate you guys having me on and uh, trying to help us sell some books and give some people some insight on taking care of, of themselves, taking care of their hearts, the smoking, the drinking, a lot of that stuff uh, hurts, you know. And heart disease is the number one killer in this country for both men and women. Thank you, Rod. You take care. Thanks again for helping us out. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.